In this episode, I am joined by Charles Manson, author of the second Karmapa, Karma Pakshi, published by Shambhala, and librarian for the Tibetan collections at Oxford University's Bodleian Library and at the British Library. Charles begins by discussing the remarkable life of Karma Pakshi, the second Karmapa, Tibet's oldest continuous reincarnation lineage. Charles traces Karma Pakshi's adventures as a yogic trainee, personal guru to Mongol Khans, figure of political intrigue, and reformer of monasteries. Charles goes on to tell the story of his own life, from brutal treatment at elite British boarding schools to undergraduate studies at the renowned Columbia University. Charles recounts how arrest and deportation saw his academic prospects dashed. After a period of homelessness, he became a master woodcarver, training under craftsmen in England and Germany. Charles recalls his encounter with Buddhism, his contact with spiritual teachers such as the 16th Karmapa, his reckoning with the untimely death of his son's mother, and details his experiences undertaking eight years of closed retreat, including challenging group dynamics, the painful complications of energetic yogas, and the mechanisms of spiritual transformation. Charles also discusses his remarkable time with the Turton Karma Rinpoche, receiving sacred Chulen instructions and witnessing the Mahasiddha miraculously press a footprint into rock, as well as Charles' own return to academia, with postgraduate studies at Harvard and long-standing work at Oxford University and the British Library. So without further ado, Charles Manson. Charles Manson, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I'm so delighted to be talking with you today, and I must say congratulations on your new publication, Second Karmapa Karma Pakshi, part of the Lives of the Masters series published by Shambhala. Congratulations. Thank you very much. Yes. A labor of love. <laughs> and I understand it was quite some years in the making. Mm. Uh, it includes uh, very detailed, and I think... Well, I don't know if there's been in the past such a comprehensive survey, if you like, of Karma Pakshi's life as this. And then the second half of the book, lots of translations mm. of various writings of and about Karma Pakshi. So mm. what, what, what can you say about this book? And can you say something about how it came to be? Well, on a sort of longish journey <laughs> uh, of my life, the, uh, at some point, uh, went into a Buddhist retreat for uh, eight years. It was a group retreat. Um, firstly, with, I think it was six or seven people. And then um, the second, that was four years. And then the second four years was, uh, oh, it was 20 or so. Yeah, it's about 30 years ago now. Um, and during that, we did a, what was known as a Kamapakshi Guru Yoga. And I derived uh, considerable benefit from that. And afterwards, I thought I'd look more into uh, his life. It was something interesting uh, to me. And I started off in a fairly sort of superficial way, shall we say, just looking at the, uh, the more recent accounts. And then gradually uh, got deeper and deeper into it and then found that he'd actually written some memoirs, which nobody had uh, looked at much. 
uh, they're not easy to <laughs> look at. Uh, the manuscript, uh, the actual manuscript's fine, but the uh, uh, the language, um, perhaps, and the way that they're written too. Uh, and so I started work on that and also looking at some of his other writings as well. And then later I found the... Um, uh, there, well, it was only in 2015, I think, this was made available, uh, a manuscript coming out of uh, Tibet that the, uh, contained uh, 40, 40 odd of his uh, songs, uh, which people hadn't known about. So I included that in the book as well. Some of them, anyway, uh, I think uh, about 10 or so. And also earlier in 2010, I had found in an ex sort of ex research trip in uh, China and Nepal and India, uh, I come across another manuscript that listed the uh, what it purported to say that the reincarnations that he had uh, told people about, which, again, hadn't been known about widely anyway. Uh, I found this manuscript in a, a llama's kitchen in um, East Tibet. The, and so that was also uh, quite interesting. That informed the book to a certain extent as well. And that's really how it, and then it was just, you know, the work of working on it, really. That's how it came about. Very interesting. I'm curious about these, the difficulty of the autobiography, the so-called Rang Namtar. Um, mm. Although perhaps I've realized I ought to ask you, who was briefly Karma Pakshi? Ah. Why, why is he so significant? And it's... then I'd like to know what it is, what it was about the Rang Namtar in particular that was that presented difficulty. Yes. Uh, well, Karma Pakshi was born in the 13th century, at the beginning of it, uh, either 1204 or 1206. And the, he lived until uh, 1283. And it was at a time when the reincarnation uh, tradition or system, but tradition is probably better, uh, had hardly begun in Tibet. There had been some people who had either been uh, said of them uh, he is a reincarnation or had actually declared themselves as uh, reincarnations. But it hadn't become very, uh, it hadn't developed very well at all, the con continuity. And also what was quite noticeable was that this was these were adults that were, uh, this was being identified. Uh, so it wasn't uh, a child yet. And it was him that was first intimated that uh, he was a reincarnation of a person who had actually died uh, about 15 years beforehand. So that was uh, quite unusual. Uh, and he also um, then uh, practiced very extensively uh, near a place called Batang, up in the, the mountains there, and eventually gathered quite a lot of students around him. This was a, a long retreat of about 13 years or so. And then he be, became you know, well-known as a meditator, and he started to repair monasteries of his predecessor, the one who had died 15, 13, 14, 15 years before. 
and he uh, then gained a reputation. And as it happened, Kublai Khan, the great uh, Mongol emperor, he was not yet an emperor, he was uh, a prince at this time, a warrior prince. Uh, he happened to pass through, pass along East Tibet, Western China, twice uh, on a military expedition. And he must have heard about Kamapakshi, and he sent uh, a messenger to Kamapakshi to ask him to come to the court. And after some doubt about this, he writes a little bit about you know whether he should come or whether he should go. Uh, he does go to the court in uh, north, well, sort of northeast China, I suppose, northwest, sorry, northwest China, northeast Tibet. And uh, they get on quite well. But then Kamapakshi uh, has an intimation, a vision, uh, that uh, there's going to be trouble at the court. And he decides to leave. And he spends some more time in that area. But then uh, Monge Khan, Kublai Khan's elder brother, who is actually emperor, and he was, uh, in fact, um, engaging in military you know, uh, invasion and so forth, uh, way over in uh, uh, Ukraine, in Kiev and Hungary and so forth, uh, about... This would have been about 15 years earlier in the 1240s. Uh, we're now up to about 1255 or so. And so Kamapakshi is a middle-aged man. And he, uh, Monge Khan issued, he must have presumably heard about this teacher from, uh, who was at his brother's, his younger brother's court. Uh, he sent for him uh, to come to Karakoram in Mongolia, the center of this world empire went right across from Korea, way across to uh, Krakow, I suppose, or almost that far, but certainly uh, Hungary. And uh, this time he didn't have doubts about it, or he doesn't express them anyway. Uh, and he crossed the Gobi Desert, and he arrived at uh, Karakoram. And as I explain a little bit in the book, it's uh, there that he comes to a realization, uh, again, a sort of further realization about his, uh, his being a reincarnation. Because the previous uh, Kamapa, he wasn't known as a Kamapa yet, this is Dusum Kempa. And Kamapa actually was the first person to be called, or he called himself Kamapa. Uh, the previous uh, Dusan Kempa, his previous incarnation, had made some predictions. He was well known for making predictions about uh, future lives and also discussing uh, past lives to his disciples. We have records of this. And his disciples at some point, a lot of the, uh, not predictions, yes, predictions yes, about future lives, the, uh, had been way off in the future. And they asked him quite naturally, you know, well, we'd like to know when you're going to be reborn next, um, because, you know, we have attachment to you. And the, he gave uh, three uh, examples, and none of them fitted with Kamapakshi's situation. So he knew about these predictions. They'd been written down, Kamapakshi. 
knew. And he, uh, so one, you know, far off in the West and one down in the South. Of, uh, and, but the third one was that he would be reborn for the sake of one person. And this contradicts the Mahayana principle that if you have any control or influence over a future rebirth, I mean, constantly the bodhicitta vow, the bodhisattva vow, is that I will act through life after life for the sake of all beings. And to be reborn for the sake of one being does seem a bit uh, contradictory. And it was as Kamapakshi was approaching the center, the nerve center of the empire, that it came to him that, ah, this is what he meant, was that if I can influence this emperor who has influence over so many people across the world, then uh, this would be highly beneficial. And he does, he does meet the emperor, they get on very well, uh, he gives the emperor initiation, uh, he gives him advice about uh, social policies, which uh, Kamapakshi claims anyway, uh, uh, he did follow. He even advises him about um, preventing uh, killing of animals on certain days of the month, which for you know a Mongolian warrior emperor uh, would seem a bit unusual, but he did issue an edict. We have separate records about that, about not killing animals on certain days of the month. Uh, but it was rather short-lived because uh, Monge was still a uh, a warrior at heart, so to speak. Uh, apparently, he was quite a good meditator, according to Kamapakshi. He was uh, he was really impressed with his meditation abilities and understanding. Uh, but Monge was still committed to his grandfather's commitment to uh, conquer China. Uh, China had been uh, dis unified for uh, some centuries now. And uh, Chinggis Khan, the grandfather, the famous Genghis Khan, uh, he had actually died on uh, in northern China in uh, trying to you know, conquer or unify, whichever way you want to put it, uh, China. And it was sort of uh, considered uh, an obligation, perhaps, to uh, continue that legacy. So Monge decided to go, you know, he assembled his forces, his younger brother was ready to, uh, in China as well, and they were going to do, a, you know, a sort of pincer movement. And he went south to begin this, but Kamapakshi uh, left uh, Monge Khan and went uh, further west and saw another branch of the family over in uh, Yining. Uh, but he wasn't very successful. They were more inclined towards uh, Islam uh, than uh, Buddhism. And then he eventually returned and he caught up again with uh, Mongi Khan in northern China. Uh, and it was not that long afterwards that Mongi Khan actually died while on campaign. He, he got ill uh, down in sort of mid-China. So to a certain extent, that left uh, Kamapakshi uh, not involved with the Mongol courts anymore. And he was continuing his uh, preaching, repairing uh, stupas and monasteries in northern China area. Uh, 
So Mongia died, and both Kublai Khan and the younger younger brother, the Arik Boke, who had been in uh, Mongolia uh, at the court when Kamapakshi was there, they both declared themselves as the emperor of emperor, the Kagan of Kagans of Khans, uh, and you know claiming to be emperor of the whole region, and this led to a kind of civil war. And Kublai Khan had been rather upset, apparently, about uh, Kamapakshi leaving earlier when he'd left the court. And he apparently thought that uh, he was part of Arik Burke's um, court or side of this uh, argument. And so he issued a death warrant against Kamapakshi, several, in fact. Uh, but <laughs> none of them worked. Um, and there's, you know, I go into it to a certain extent in, in the book. Um, it's been perhaps, well, I imagine it's been embellished uh, somewhat uh, as legend a bit. But, you know, the core uh, story is that uh, he wanted him killed, but he couldn't seem to kill him. And in fact, the uh, executioner himself uh presumably got rather uh, frustrated or upset about this and committed suicide himself. And then Kublai Khan decided, well, I'll rescind this death warrant, this death order, and just put him in uh, internal exile. It was a regular punishment in those days. And he sent him to a nearby lake, a, a sort of barren area, which happened to have a lake. And this would be in northeast uh, China. And so for the duration of this civil war, Kamapakshi was in northeast. There's a huge distances he's uh, crossing by horse or walking. And he spent a couple of years there writing and having visions and so forth, uh, very much uh, on his own, not entirely alone, but not amongst people. He, he didn't do preaching and so forth. Uh, and then the civil war was resolved. Kublai Khan uh, was uh, declared the Kagan of Khans. And uh, he then called Kamapakshi to the Beijing area. Beijing was not yet Beijing, but to that area where it was later uh, created by Kublai Khan. And uh, he imprisoned him there in a temple and... <laughs> Even though it's well, this is in Kamapakshi's memoirs. Even though the do- the doors were nailed shut, and there was a twenty four hour guard around it, um, he escaped. Uh, it, it, he, you know, apparently, the walls uh, were uh, dissolved, and he uh, got out. And this seemed to change Kam- uh, Kublai Khan's mind, and he then uh, asked uh, him to be his teacher again. Uh, but I think uh, Kamapakshi was getting on quite a bit now. He was in his 60s. Um, he, uh, he'd had enough of all this, and he decided to... Uh, he, he had safe passage now. He decided to go back to Tibet. Uh, and he had a considerable amount of wealth now. Uh, Mongi Khan had given him wealth. He still seemed to have it. And uh, there's not a direct record of Kublai Khan giving him much, but... Perhaps he had 
So he came back to Tibet, first to East Tibet, where he was born and had some monasteries, um, repaired them again, or increased and enhanced them, built statues. And then another long journey uh, to central Tibet, near Lhasa, uh, to the monastery uh, Tsopu, where he uh, proceeded to build a huge statue. I mean, really huge, 60 feet high. Um, which for those days must have been incredibly difficult. You you had to get the ore first, the iron ore or the, the metal, uh, <clears throat> and then you had to, uh, you know, melt it and so forth. Uh, I don't know, was it coal or charcoal? It, it doesn't go into a lot of detail. I think he had, there was a, a mine of copper nearby as well and mix it with copper. Uh, and... Eventually, he built it. This was because he had an instruction in a dream vision uh, some years before when he was on his travels to uh, create a, he had a vision of a huge Buddha to create a statue. And he did it and he consecrated it. And apparently, it was, it was very beneficial to people. And then we come to uh, the last part of his life. Uh, and so he built this statue, and very quickly, or very soon, it became a source of pilgrimage, as one can imagine, something this huge uh, in remote central Tibet. Uh, and there was a party that came from the south of Tibet, and in this party, a part of pilgrims, they, there was a, uh, an itinerant potter and his wife, and they came, you know, to see the statue and then go on to Lhasa, where there was also a very famous holy statue of Sakyamuni Buddha. Uh, but they came, and as they was there, at some point, uh, Kamapakshi, who must have been quite a figure in those days, uh, and all his stories and his miraculous uh, events and his visions and... Um, he was the teacher of two emperors, after all. So he just calls aside this itinerant potter and he asks him, he said, at, at some time, I need to borrow your dwelling. And this was very peculiar, <laughs> as you might imagine. So the poor potter goes back to his uh, fellow pilgrims and says, you know, that's great Lama who built the statue and so forth. Well, I don't know exactly what he says, but uh, I'm extrapolating a little bit. But one can imagine it um, quite reasonably. The uh, He's asked to borrow my house. And they all just, well, this is recorded. <laughs> he just bursts out laughing. Uh, because, as they said, you're an itinerant potter. You have no house. <laughs> well, it so happens that a year later, his wife gives birth to the child that becomes Karmapakshi's reincarnation, or is recognized as Karmapakshi's re reincarnation. So in a sense, perhaps Karmapakshi was preparing the ground there. Um, you can interpret it how you wish, but uh, it does seem that it, you know, a fairly reasonable way of looking at it. Um, 
And that, I would suggest, is the third. You know, first, as a child, he's told that he's uh, a reincarnation. Then he sort of confirms it in his own mind uh, when he goes to the court in Karakoram. And then uh, he makes sure that the next reincarnation uh, is discovered as at the age of five uh, by a, um, a yogin, a again, a traveling yogin, who Karmapakshi gives instructions to so that he can pass on the instructions to the next Karmapa, uh, who is known as uh, Rangjundorji, the third Karmapa. And therefore, afterwards, I suppose you could say by the time of the fourth Karmapa, the, the lineage is really settled in a way. Uh, and it becomes really obligatory to find this. And the fourth Karmapa, um, it's said in the histories that uh, when he was a child, he declares, you know, I am Kamapa. Um, and then they, the people come and find him and, and uh, confirm this. So that's one way in which Kamapakshi is extremely uh, important in a way. He, st he starts off the oldest continuous uh, reincarnation lineage of uh, Tibetan Buddhism. Uh, a couple of centuries later, there's the uh, uh, the Dalai Lama tradition starts, and then eventually, another couple of centuries, in the 17th century, the Dalai Lamas become head of uh, government, and they rule for uh, 300 years until the, the communists come. So he's important in that way. Uh, I, I do deal with in the book with uh, certain degrees of his legacy. Um, and it's also, yeah, well, there's, I think we'll stop there. <laughs> yeah. Please carry on. I also asked about the difficulty of the Namtar, the Rang Namtar, but let's, let's, um, let's, yes, the Tuku uh, mm. issue to begin with here. So this is this, what sometimes called now this Tuku system, although you prefer tradition. And in, in the book, uh, Second Karmapa, Karmapakshi, you write, various beliefs in rebirth have been and still are widespread across many religions and philosophies. But Tibetan culture is unique in having integrated the belief into the socio-religious administration of cultural centers, such as Buddhist monasteries. Mm. So I wonder if you might say a little something about that blossoming uh, reincarnation tradition. Did it move from merely a sense of spiritual potency being transferred or spiritual authority being transferred into uh, the administrative lands and um, monasteries and mm. that sort of inheritance as well, the material inheritance, if you want, or the temporal authority? Did mm. it move from a sort of spiritual significance to a sort of a temporal authority significance, or did it always have something of an aspect of inheriting uh, a fiefdom also? Yeah, it took a while. Um... I think this needs, it has been studied to a certain extent, uh, but I think perhaps it needs uh, more study of the, the really the, uh, whatever legal or quasi-legal uh, arrangements there were about how uh, property and uh, is transferred in this way. Uh, and also, uh, the financial arrangements too. Uh, of course, there aren't that many records. How many records of um, 
financial arrangements do we have for medieval Europe? Um, we do have them, of course, but it's uh, and and property arrangements. Uh, so the in fact, um, there was a sort of tension for a while uh, in Kamapakshi's case that uh, he seemed to have quite easily assumed the leadership, if not, I wouldn't call it maybe ownership, but leadership anyway, of the monasteries of Dusum Kempa, his predecessor, uh, despite him having uh, been dead for uh, quite a while. And because uh, by the time Kamapakshi is an adult and has finished uh, retreat, you know, he's in his 50s. So it's 50, 60 years later, uh, this uh, impressive person turns up and says, you know, I'm going to uh, regenerate this monastery. Um, and... But when he does this in central Tibet, at Tsopu, which is where uh, Dusum Kempa died, uh, the, he, doesn't, um, he doesn't actually, his, when uh, Kamapakshi dies later, it doesn't pass to uh, disciples, the uh, ownership. It stays in the family, and it doesn't actually go to uh, Rangjundorji. So there's a sort of tension there. And at some point uh, later, there's actually a, a book done by Ruth Gamble in the same uh, series uh, about the third Kamapa. Uh, and that's very interesting too. The uh, it, He doesn't... So, yeah, it, it stays within his family. So, in a sense, it hasn't actually... Uh, or it's his uh, uh, nephews and uh, so forth, that uh, run the, the monastery there. Uh, so it's not entirely worked out that, oh, all the property then goes to the next uh, reincarnation. Uh, not yet, anyway. Uh, this may happen later, but I'm not well-versed in the actual nitty-gritty of those sort of practical arrangements. Um, but certainly, uh, the third Kamapa then goes to uh, Tsopu and eventually gets uh, accepted there. Uh, but it's not entirely uh, smooth yet. I think it takes a, a little bit of time uh, for this to uh, happen. Um, this, I think we tend to, looking back, we tend to think, oh, it's an institution, uh, there are rules and regulations for institutions, and to transfer of... Um, uh, property and also uh, authority as well is uh, laid down with rules. That's how we kind of do things. We tend to, on our in our personal lives, uh, it goes from uh, one generation to the next, and we have wills and and so forth. Uh, in institutions, you can it can go from uh, perhaps from one teacher to the next, or from uh, you know one disciple to the next in religious context, or it can be but through election uh, amongst either a, a whole a, a lot of people or just the sort of um, uh, elite of the of the institution. Uh, in the case of the Pope, for instance, he's elected uh, through 
inspiration, shall we say, from from uh, uh, from God. The uh, but in this case, it's uh, people who knew the previous uh, incarnation, so and received transmission. Uh, they go looking for the child, uh, the next uh, child, and then they declare that. Uh, and sometimes it doesn't work out, as we know. There's a controversy at the moment that um, two people who knew the, the previous come up very well um, then declared different people as being the next come up. Uh, this has happened in the past as well. Usually it gets resolved eventually. Um, but uh, it's rather unfortunate. But it, it's a bit nebulous, isn't it? You can't... <laughs> there, there is no uh, mechanism for actual vote. It's a matter of people coming to a, a general consensus. And how were such situations resolved in the past? Uh, one presumes assassination. <laughs> <laughs> No, no. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I haven't looked at that uh, side. I, my interest was, uh, uh, has been, what still is, the uh, the beginnings of this. I mean, yeah, fair enough. to my mind, you know, having been a, a Tibetan Buddhist practitioner for uh, quite a while, uh, the <laughs> fifty years, <laughs> um, and we, you know, we have this reincarnate lamas and so forth. I just thought, well. How did this all start? You know, where does it come from? Um, okay, the Buddhist belief in, in reincarnation. Uh, but then you've got this sort of system, I suppose, or tradition. And the uh and also the Kamapakshi is quite important uh in a retreat context, in the Kagyu tradition anyway, uh, as a guru yoga, um, because in the 17th century, there was somebody who had a vision, uh, Mingyo Toku, who's, there is a Mingyo Toku current, uh, who's a very well-known and respected teacher. Uh, his previous you know, 17th century incarnation had a vision of Kamapakshi, and this got written down as a practice. Uh, it had a, He was given instructions from this vision, um, which I've translated in the book. Uh, and uh, the the instructions, not the whole practice. And that uh, practice is also very important. So there was a combination of the reincarnation sort of intrigue, shall we say, or curiosity at the beginnings of it, and also the fact that uh, it was a very important figure for uh, Kagyu, Tibetan Buddhism uh, practice. I just wanted to make information available to people because I think you said uh, there weren't many. Uh, there's been no extensive um, look at his life. Uh, there's been uh, some, you know, short. Uh, usually, as part of the lineage, these short uh, descriptions. I wanted to look at it more closely and I looked at his memoirs. Now you said. Uh, why, uh, in what way was it difficult? Well, his style of writing, uh, I haven't got any reason to believe that uh, it isn't his writing. 
but you can't confirm it absolutely. It's not in his handwriting. You know, it was written as a copy much later. Um, but the uh, when you read it, it does. It's there are sort of bits and pieces of it of the memoirs, um, and it may well be that he was dictating to uh, a, a close disciple. Uh, he may have actually written some. It is uh, quite a bit of it's in the first person, um, or. He referring to, yeah, he refers to himself as a name as well. Um, Rangjun Dorji, he calls himself, which becomes the name of the next incarnation. Um, he refers to himself as Kamapa as well, which Dusan Kemper hadn't been referred to. And actually, I'm told, I did ask uh, Ruth Gamble, who looked into the next Kamapa's life, um, that... Uh, the third Kamapa didn't refer to himself as uh, Kamapa either. Or he may have done once in his writings, but um, it wasn't general uh, as a title yet until probably the fourth Kamapa. Um, and the difficulty was, uh, well, it's in handwriting, uh, so you then got to interpret. Um, you know about Tibetan a bit. <laughs> and, uh, they... When people you do it uh, well, sorry, you general people. When you're taking, when you're writing, uh, sometimes you uh, use abbreviations, and in Tibetan, likewise, they for very common terms like uh, Buddha and so forth, it gets abbreviated. Well, there's something like three hundred different types of abbreviation in this, uh, so you have to uh, work those out as well. Um, and then the way that he writes the and. Uh, as well, he's. I mean, he's a he's a Mahasiddha. That's the subtitle of the book. Um, so it's very sort of full on, really. Um, sometimes the language gets quite um, mystical, and uh, some people may find some of my translation slightly obscure in a way or hard to understand. I think what I've found anyway for myself. Um, I hope this is valid for others, is that if you sort of cogitate on it a bit, you know, chew it over mentally, uh, some kind of understanding does come. It may just be poor translation, of course, but uh, um, uh, I think that sometimes it just needs a bit of um, sitting with, with it uh, because this is somebody who's quite unusual writing, who's not necessarily a great uh clear writer. Uh, his reincarnation, Rangjun Dorji, is very, uh, I would say, anyway, uh, quite easy to understand and very clear and sort of logical in that way, uh, step by step. Um, but Karmapakshi is more sort of intuitive, shall we say. The second Karmapa, Karmapakshi, it's really fantastic. Slim, but dense. <laughs> and it goes at some pace. He's had an exciting life. He was He yes. had a real adventure. And it rockets along at quite a pace. Um, so it's really fantastic. Thank you for for doing it. Thank you. Um, yeah, let's pivot, shall we? You were born in Venezuela. It's... <laughs> As predicted. Uh... Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> for the sake of one person. <laughs> <laughs> you mean the one listener to this podcast? Probably. Yes. <laughs> Oh dear. <laughs> yes. 
<laughs> yes. Uh, <laughs> my father was an engineer. Um, he'd been in the uh, the Second World War as a royal engineer in Burma and then in Italy and so forth. And then he joined, uh, after, he was very young then. Um, he'd left university to join up and then went back to university. And he'd decided uh, to join up with um, uh, Shell, Shell Oil. And so he went for training in Amsterdam. And uh, there he met my mother. And then he got posted to uh, Venezuela. As far as I know, that's when the sort of oil in Venezuela was really beginning to take off uh, in uh, the Maracaibo and Bachiquero areas, uh, the lake, uh, you know, the lake at the top of uh, South America. And uh, yeah, I was born, it was quite um, uh, sort of pioneering in a way <laughs> uh, for these people. They, uh, my Apparently my dad used to come back from work, you know, covered in oil and stuff. And uh, my mother said that uh, she went, she was gave birth to me in Maracaibo in the hospital there. And he was actually in the field. Uh, and she went to join him with this new child um, and had to be flown there by helicopter. <laughs> and she was still, this was a week, at a week old, I think. Um, I was weak old. The, uh, she said uh, getting out of the helicopter she was still a little bit um, sore, shall we say, um, was extremely painful. <laughs> um, so I grew up, yes, uh, for the first um, uh, eight years or so. I was, well, uh, let's say 12 years, but I was back and forth quite a bit. We did spend some time in Houston, uh, again, connected with oil, in uh, 54, 55, uh, because the offshore drilling was just beginning in those days. Um, and he, my father went, um, it's quite fortunate for him in a way, he got uh, uh, sent there and was part of that offshore drilling. It had been happening in uh, off uh, California too. Uh, we went br very briefly to California. Uh, presumably he was retraining to a certain extent. Uh, and the, uh, so we spent, uh, my first school was in uh, Houston. Uh, Texas, um, where they made you, when we had breaks, they made you lie down. I just couldn't lie down. <laughs> it was very fidgety. So um, that's my vague memory of uh, first school. Uh, and then we went back to uh, Maracaibo. And presumably, with my father's knowledge uh, in training uh, for offshore drilling uh, helped in that then they could uh, drill uh, within the lake at, at Maracaibo. Uh, but they didn't particularly appreciate it. So they uh, kept on asking if, um, so we're into the 60s now, uh, if they could uh, return to Europe. Uh, because the, uh, and as it happened, the offshore drilling was just beginning in Europe. And so he had a, a good case to put, um, you know, I know about offshore drilling. Uh, why, why can't I be part of this? So he was part of the um, uh, the British-Norwegian effort in uh, uh, getting oil out of the North Sea. 
So that's uh, really, you know, the background there. My father also worked for Shell, by the way. As oh, God. Yeah. We're and brothers I, in oil. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, your father then might have uh, based himself out of Shetland at some point. The Sulumvo, the terminal there, the largest mm. oil, mm. oil terminal in the Northern Hemisphere. Mm. I grew up on the Shetland Islands, so uh, oh gosh, possible that. Uh, when, when was this? When did you? When? Um, let's think. I suppose eighty-six to oh five. Yeah. yeah, by that time he was um, he was actually beginning to be semi-retired. I think, yeah, um, and he he just worked. Uh, what happened is he uh, we went to. We were in Holland for quite a bit. That's when he came back to Europe. It wasn't to the UK. It was to Holland, uh, to Shell there, uh, and then got involved uh, a little bit. We were in Norway, and, and I was carrying on with the education in the UK. Shell would pay for uh, boarding school, and the um, uh, by that time he was based in London. He would occasionally go up to Aberdeen. Uh, but only as a sort of day trip to see people uh, and, you know, check on things perhaps uh, or decide on a new, but he sort of was risen up uh, to a certain extent. Uh, and then he, 80s, he was semi-retired, you know, and just advising really, he sort of got fairly lucrative <laughs> um, advisor positions by that time. You mentioned boarding school there. Mm. Uh, you went to a couple of different boarding yes. schools, prep schools and boarding schools. Yes. Um, but you've said that your education, to quote you, wasn't a great experience at all. In fact, you described Bryanston Elders as a fairly dreadful place. Yes. And that your experiences there were before some of the famous reforms in those in those places that mm. there was a, and I mm. suppose, waves of reform that have occurred. And you, you were just before a big wave of that reform. I'm wondering if you might say something about what sort of education you had there, uh, mm. what, and why was it so unpleasant? Um, yeah, could you say something more about that period? Yeah, I think my um, perception, uh, when you think about it, you know, looking back, um, some of it may come from the fact that I first went to school in the United States, uh, and if you think, I mean, I started at boarding school. Um, in cold, you know, I've been in hot countries, you know, living in a swimming pool type of thing. Um, and you come to this cold country, uh, and both, you know, emotionally cold as well. Um, in the 50s, you imagine what the U England was like in the 50s. Um, it wasn't that great. And the, um, so I, it was a bit of a shock in that way. Uh, the way and the sort of authority, um, the way that they beat people, um, the fact that uh, they weren't professionals, you know, these teachers, they um, they just anybody who <laughs> got appointed at these private schools uh, could teach. Um, there were sort of ex-colonels who presumably, I don't know, the... Um, and then there was a certain amount of abuse as well, which I was fortunate not to um, be a, a party to. But you you saw it, you know, um, and that's not good either. Um, to a certain extent, 
you know, we've become more uh, alive to this and condemn it more nowadays. Um, in those days, maybe it just, it's very dirty, dirty stuff. Um, and uh, that's really, you know, the actual uh, teaching, you know, the intellectual sort of journey, um, that was okay. Yeah. I mean, I did have my mind open to a certain extent. Um, uh, I'd had, you know, all you need is one good teacher, they say. Um, and yeah, it, it was uh, very good. Um, but the authoritarianism, I just, I couldn't deal with it. I came, well, I think, you know, I had a problem with it uh, because of my previous uh, American influence, perhaps. I don't know, but that's my interpretation anyway. It continued into the public school as well, you know, the uh, the sort of secondary school. Uh, again, the authoritarianism. I got beaten, um, I think I probably hold the, the school record twice in two days um, for absolutely trivial things. It's just, uh, um, I think it's kind of revolting, really. Um, and again, they weren't, you know, this was your secondary education. And it was just people who'd been to Oxford or Cambridge or got a degree, and then it was assumed that they could teach. Um, and I'm not sure that they could, really. Sorry uh, to be so negative, but uh, uh, I didn't like it at all. So those schools are said to be, uh, particularly the first one that you attended, mm. sort of forming schools in a way for sure. empire, mm. for people to go off to the Raj or something like that, and yes. uh, you know, be in charge of some something or other. And so they were geared towards that, and geared towards affecting the students in a certain way that they'd be useful, I suppose, mm. uh, agents of uh, agents of empire in those days. And uh, there is a model of boarding school syndrome, uh, by mm -hmm. the way, an ABCD model. And it, it, it's, it says abandonment, bereavement, mm -hmm. captivity, and then dissociation. Abandonment, of course, because what goes to boarding school and though one's parents may have the best of intentions, mm. in a sense, you're, you're, you're uh, separated from them. So there yes. can be a sense of terrible abandonment. And mm -hmm. the way that that emotional response is dealt with in those kind of environments can be quite brutal by the, the um, institution and also by the other pupils, of course, and bereavement, of course. Mm -hmm. And then there's the captivity, which you've pointed to, yes. and it's a forced submission to even trivial exercising of authority. Mm. For its own sake, almost, and then dissociation—the coping, in other words—that one one learns to cope with that somehow. Mm. Mm. Um, I wonder if any of that resonates. And what do you think, if anything, was the intention, or what was the, the goal behind that sort of authoritarianism? Was it was there much design or intelligence behind it? Do you think? Um, no. <laughs> Not that I could perceive, anyway. Um, it's just outrageous. Yeah. It's a sort of meanness, you know. Um, Why? Yeah, it's hard to fathom. It's hard to fathom. You can't go back in time and ask these people. Uh, but it was structured that way. 
And it worked to a certain extent in the sense that, you know, this small country had such big influence across the world. Um, um, but, you know, there's both good and bad. Uh, I Intellectually, I don't think I was stymied uh, there. Uh, in terms of, you know, coping, uh, well, one way of coping is to be rebellious. Um, I would take my rebellion quite, uh, what should we say, within limits. <laughs> it wasn't completely outrageous. But uh, I became, I think I'm right in saying, <laughs> known as a bit of a rebel type. Um, and I, but I also, it meant, the way of dealing with it was sort of intellectually get involved with uh, uh, my subject matter. Anyway, that was my eventual resolution of it, uh, I suppose, within myself. Um, I used to spend quite a bit of time. Um, I mean, somebody who was you know, really quite sociable, gregarious, was on my school reports. Um, but I would spend time uh, alone in the library. Um, I mean, really alone because other those uh, other boys. It was a boys' school. Uh, didn't really. I would be the only one in the library there, uh, and I would write uh, essays uh, for. You know, there would be a prize in your year for something. Nobody else. Well, rarely somebody else would go in for these things, and I would. Um, I won, you know, because I was really the only person. Uh, but I think. Perhaps, yeah, some of the things were okay. Things about, I wrote one on the Crusades um, at the age of 15, and then something about Gothic architecture, sort of medieval interests, which persisted, that you could say, uh, transferred to Tibet. Uh, and so that was a, a kind of um, way of uh, dealing with it. Uh, I was very sociable, you know, I was breaking rules by going to the pub and that sort of thing, uh, smoking and, you know, getting into trouble for those things, uh, answering back at times. Uh, but it wasn't, I didn't, I never took it to um, extremes, really. Um, so I never, I, I didn't get expelled. I just, uh, I tested the boundaries, should we say. <laughs> yes. And I'm curious, did any of that, stay with you um well you you sort of you know why should i have got interested in tibetan buddhism um i suppose it was a sort of questioning because i questioned this authority uh, i certainly didn't abide by it. i didn't didn't think i got put in any yeah i did for a short while i think i can't remember now well, I got put in any position of authority. Um, maybe I wasn't, I, I did, you know, in sport, that was another outlet as well, actually. I was quite good at sport too, well coordinated with ball and bat and that sort of thing. Uh, I was captain of a hockey team and played well in, uh, I, I liked teamwork, actually. That was, um, so I wasn't, an, uh, you know, an isolated person in that way, but, uh, I wasn't really, yeah, I was sort of part of the team, but there was an element of not being part of the team 
And I suppose to a certain extent, that kind of journey or approach uh, in a way, in a psychological sense, may have helped uh, attract me to uh, Tibetan Buddhism. There was a series of coincidences as well, the attraction to uh, Tibetan Buddhism. Because I came to it quite early, uh, I think it was 21, 22, something like that. Um, whereas often people uh, come to it a bit later on. And that pivot to the intellectual hmm. as a coping mechanism, is that because that's a, that was a sphere in which you could exercise agency and potency? Or what was the, what was the mechanism there? Do you know? Um, I, I've always liked reading. Uh, and this, we didn't have television in Venezuela. Uh, and I used to read a lot. We you know, kind of had to read. Did you have this huge stack of uh, comics? Um, wish I had them now. <laughs> They'd be worth a fortune. Uh, American DC comics and so forth. Uh, and I would read books a lot. Uh, and the... I suppose it was the reading. Yeah, I just liked reading, and and you can get into a, you know, a space with reading, um, which, another world perhaps, and then I found that actually you could research as well, uh, and that was uh, very. So although I read you know literature, I'm, I wouldn't consider myself well read in literature, uh, but I liked the combination of literature and facts with that history offers and that you can research it. And that sort of stayed with me, I suppose. Yeah, I can see that in, uh, in <laughs> yes. this. It's fact after fact after <laughs> fact, but, but uh, yes. written, in a, written in such an accessible narrative sense oh, to it it has a, a great pace mm. to it a great sense of energy and excitement to it mm. but and, and one almost overlooks the density of facts that are presented there especially mm. uh, they haven't been collected together like that before there hasn't been such an extensive review of of that material and mm. um it is yeah r remarkable array of, of of information you've gathered there and put it together in such it's a in such a in such a narrative it's great yeah mm -hmm. i can see that penchant <laughs> itself well that's you've you know that's my intention uh, and i'm i just i'm quite relieved that um that seems to have come across you know the reviews yep. have been uh, positive i'm waiting for that bad review <laughs> i don't wish to invite it <laughs> but, uh, uh, please don't just do a bad review for the sake of it um but if there is genuine you know i see the faults in, in the book but um and the research to, well, hopefully I see all the faults, but the, uh, yeah, it's just, I, I'm, yeah, it's just very, very nice that um, people seem to like it. Yeah, mm. yeah it's no wonder. It's mm. no wonder. So at that time, uh, you also have said that there, you had an inclination, a sort of spark of interest towards religion, mm. rising early and attending communion, Anglican communion, mm. even though it wasn't, in, when it wasn't compulsory, of course, there was a compulsory aspect, I'm sure. Yes. Um, and that you've also said, actually, that had you had better explanation or guidance there, perhaps, or example, maybe, mm -hmm. then 
you might have gone more in that direction. Yes. Yes, could well have been. Yeah. yeah. What do you What do you imagine that direction to have <laughs> would, could have been, or would have been? What do you, What, what hmm. do you think of when you say that? Hmm. Well, I did. Uh, you know, this sort of rebellious child, a boy, you know, in a f um, teenage teenager, should we say? Um, and yet he would get up early and go to communion for a while. Uh, this only this went on for about a year. I suppose it was a kind of searching, yeah. Um, I was really, I was looking for, I didn't really understand. And the priest at the school wasn't, I don't know, he didn't really explain things terribly well. It was all kind of functional and so forth. Um, I think maybe if I had, uh, you know, some come across somebody who was more, uh, spiritual, should we say, not to be unkind, uh, then I may well have uh, stuck with that, may well have, you know, become a sort of unusual priest or something, a slightly different priest, uh, not part of the mainstream, should we say. But the, uh, I just didn't, you know, didn't uh, connect really with the uh, the Christian teaching um, so much. I did read quite a bit about it and so forth. But in the end, uh, I didn't, you know, it, it, I, my interest left me, mm. I suppose. Um, and then there was a sort of searching period. And I suppose you could say that I found Tibetan Buddhism. Uh, I didn't leap into that um, immediately either. It was a sort of quite a gradual process. Yes. You orbited it for quite some time. Didn't you? <laughs> yes, yes, that's true. Um, we'll yes. get there. So after mm. graduating mm. Uh, secondary school, mm. you found your way to Colombia. Yes. 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 So the uh, I applied to Oxford. I worked quite hard, and I, I you know, got some decent A levels. The um, I. Mm. Yeah, I didn't get into Oxford anyway, uh, which people were surprised about. Uh, and so I got a scholarship to an exchange scholarship to uh, the States, to the school in Connecticut. And from there, I applied to Columbia and got a, uh, I think it was a scholarship again, um, where quite a bit of it was paid for uh, and went there. Uh, and of course, right, right in the tumult of um, Colombia students and the Vietnam War, and so forth. So uh, it was quite a quite a time, yeah, quite a time, quite exciting. Uh, and uh, it didn't bode well for uh, studying. Actually, you sort of got involved in the social movements of the time more. Uh, and didn't uh, sort of, in a sense, went a little bit off course, should we say. You did, or the university did? <laughs> I did, yes. <laughs> the university, uh, um, was, I think it was fine, yes. They, uh, as far as I know, I don't know. There was, uh, yeah, yeah, it was good. I enjoyed it, actually. It was, uh, I 
just felt better about how things were organized uh coming from a this rather old-fashioned uh public school system and the first day that i was there we sat on the i don't columbia has this square there's a sort of lawn type in new york city um as a group of students with a teacher and we started looking at the this was in 1969 um the poetry of bob dylan <laughs> bob dylan was living down the road <laughs> uh on you know washington near washington square uh and this was just tremendous to me uh it was so uh, uh, alive and real and honest as well uh whereas i'd come from this peculiar system that was back there i must say that uh some uh, only five years later i went back to uh a, a brief visit uh to just have a look you know i turned up on a motorbike and uh at uh this school and the boy you know they were in jeans and the hair was longer and things had changed fairly rapidly uh i was in a sense i was a victim well not a victim but um of the last bit of that unpleasant um sort of closed tight uh, uh system that they had in england yes Yes, yes, yes. Sorry, yes. I went to Columbia. Yeah, I'm curious which sorts of causes you got involved with. I, I think I know a couple of them, but I'm curious <laughs> which ones. Yeah, yeah. Well, this is another thing that uh, the the English system I had found anyway. Uh, I wasn't aware of it until then, but um, the uh, I didn't know biology. Not a single course in biology. How can you go through <laughs> schooling without doing any? We had sex education, sure, but I did not. I didn't do a single course. I did Latin, ad infinitum, but uh, no, no biology. You you can't do that. Um, and so we were required to do uh, the American system uh, certain courses that are out, sort of a little bit out with your chosen area. Uh, to get a more rounded education. So I I remember doing astronomy. Uh, and that just, <laughs> just, again, just blew my mind, the, the distances involved and uh, looking at that, uh, I hadn't really thought. This was, you know, shortly after uh, man had first landed on the moon. Uh, and the, uh, the other one was, I think, 17th century European music. I mean, it just it made you, you know, a broader person, I suppose. Uh, but in terms of you know studying medieval history, uh, the American students were just way behind, so to speak, <laughs> uh, because you'd you'd done this narrow uh, system. I mean, there's arguments for both ways, I suppose. But uh, it was quite exciting. Yeah, and then there was all the social stuff as well. Um, New York City in 1969, 1970, yeah. How was that scene? <laughs> oh, dear, it's unusual. It's, it's a bit like a dream now. Um, but it, there was a certain degree of unpleasantness as well. Uh, 
I mean, there was a, we had the arts. Oh, I did, uh, you know, sculpture as well, which then fed into becoming a woodcarver later. But uh, the art school was, I think, four blocks, four or five blocks away from the main campus. So you'd have to walk down to there. And at one point, one of the student, the female students got raped in the doorway there. And so people had to be escorted. And uh, you weren't supposed to go to Harlem at all. Uh, it was just, I mean, it was it was very rough, very rough. Uh, the community relations weren't good at all. They still. Um, so it it was. New York was uh, it, having a bad time at that time. Yeah. You joined the Black Panthers, didn't you? <laughs> Briefly, yes, <laughs> yes, yes. Oh dear, they were rather shocked <laughs> to start with <laughs> when I turned up and said, "Can I join?" And um, they kind of yes, they but to their credit, they said yes. You know do if you want to yeah so i sat in on a few meetings but then i got distracted into other things yeah um, and also there was beginning to be um a certain degree of fighting you know going on uh so yeah that was when i i wasn't so keen on it yeah but uh yeah it's I don't say that as a big thing. It's just it's a bit of a funny story. That's all. And when I think of sixties and I think of America and so on, I also think of the psychedelic, sure, uh, mm. you know, movement. Mm. Were you involved in that at all? Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The um, yeah, quite uh, not super strongly, I would say. And I was fortunate that I didn't. It was a bit a sort of repetition of that uh being at school and being something of the rebel but not taking it too far <laughs> there's always uh, uh fortunate you know some people really lost their way um, but yeah to a certain extent i you know overdid it sometimes but uh, never to a point where of losing away I, i'd still kept the idea of um uh, continuing with uh, studies if possible and uh, yeah I had some fairly imaginative experiences uh, and the uh, I had a really nice uh, experience just recently actually with uh, an old friend I don't it's uh, you know maybe I should have mentioned this those school days in England. I don't keep up with anybody from there. Never kept up with any of them at all. Uh, and that's not like me saying, oh, I don't watch to. <laughs> it's just there was no connection, really. I did turn up. There was a thing in the city of a sort of reunion type thing. And um, I went there and I, I just couldn't talk to anybody. It was uh, it's very peculiar. They're just they're different. Anyway, uh, I was talking just recently in the last year in New York with a friend. Was it this year? I think it was last year uh, from Columbia, old days. And we'd had taken a, um, a few you know, psychedelic trips together. 
and he very he be, since become a theatre director and uh, Roman Pasca is his name, uh, P A S K A, not Pasci, uh, and the uh, uh, puppet theatre and so forth. He's a very imaginative person, uh, and he said that uh, those experiences were very influential on him uh, and his work later. And I thought that was well, that was really nice. But anyway, yes, uh, part of that uh, and that sort of hippie scene. Yes. Yes, you were on a kind of track there. It's a sort of classic track yes. going to such an institution as Columbia, of course, very mm. uh, highly esteemed place. Mm. Mm. And at that time, involved in those kinds of explorations. Mm. Um, it's a certain track, it's a certain pathway. Yes. Um, it, and we can say in hindsight now, looking back, I yes, think. Yes, sure. Um, but you were to be thrown from that pathway yes. quite uh, quite abruptly. Yes. Yes, brutally. <laughs> yes. Uh, well, I had um, a very lovely uh, girlfriend, Canadian artist girlfriend at Columbia, and uh, we decided during the summer break to head west, <laughs> as people did. Uh, so we went. <laughs> we went in a Volkswagen bus, <laughs> uh, and we went up through Canada. Uh, went up to Montreal and across because she was from uh, Winnipeg. So we stopped off to see um, her mother. Uh, we were with a group of people. And we ended up in uh, Vancouver. And that's when perhaps to a certain extent, I kind of uh, lost the the track of, you know, education and so forth. I would have gone back, yes. But uh, circumstances inter intervened, um, became very, uh, and what was it? We went to Vancouver and it was a very nice scene there and Vancouver Island and uh, Salt Spring Island. Uh, before the Tibetan Buddhists came in. And actually, I did at one point write to my father and said, um, uh, I'd like to uh, get some land in uh, Salt Spring Island, and because it was going for $1,000 or something, and built the place there, you know, a young man wanting to do this. And uh, he agreed to it, actually. <laughs> but uh, we came back to, uh, yeah, winter was coming, and so we went into... Where was it? The capital of uh, the island. I think it's Victoria. It's called uh, to get supplies to you know get through the winter. And uh, she got uh, caught shoplifting. And me being nineteen, uh, I thought <laughs> it's just so stupid. Um, when it came up, you know, in the court, the magistrate's court. I thought that saying that I knew she was going to do this would somehow, it was like supportive to her. It's just a teenager, you know, the logic is ridiculous. But of course, it meant that actually this was all planned. I didn't know that she was going to do this. You know, she decided to. It was winter underwear, you know, $10 winter underwear that she stole. And so they came down on me like a ton of bricks. Um, and my name uh, on the West Coast of uh 
sort of made it into the newspapers. Charles Manson arrested. And the uh, this was about the same time that, um, I think it was in the paper the same day that uh, Jimi Hendrix's death was um, announced as well in London. And the uh, they, so they put me in jail for a bit and decided to uh, deport me. The magistrate was uh, really quite, uh, and I had no proper representation. It was, I was just lost, really. Uh, and so I was handcuffed and led to an airplane. Um, they sat with me until Edmonton, I think. And then they just put me on the, the rest of the flight to uh, uh, London. So I arrived back in London um, abruptly uh, with absolutely no money uh, and a little bit disorientated. Uh, so it took me a while to uh, get things sorted. Uh, I would, I'd slept in uh, Holland Park, you know, under bushes sort of thing. Uh, there's a park just near to uh, Charing Cross Station as you go down the hill, you know, the arches there, and then Embankment Station, there's a park there. I used to sleep there as well. Until, uh, and then I'd have to, because I wasn't, I had no residence, I couldn't get money from the dole, so I'd have to go to the East End every day to pick up money. Um, they would uh, allow a certain daily allowance. It was mostly for sailors uh, from the docks. The docks still ex kind of existed in those days. Um, and there was a, a sort of, welfare office there that I could go on a daily basis and, uh, and of course you'd have to take the tube which would <laughs> take some of your money uh, and then I'd come back um, and this went on for a little while until I persuaded I said well look my parents are in Holland um, if I could go to if you could give me enough money to get on the boat to Holland I would go back uh, there and you know try and get something sorted out. I, I, you know, why couldn't I get a job? I don't know. But uh, uh, yeah, I wasn't thinking straight really. Uh, and so that they agreed. Fortunately, uh, they made a special grant, and it was six pounds in those days. And I went um, on the boat back to Holland and turned up. Uh, all of a sudden, my parents didn't. They still thought I was in the USA. Um, and said, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm back here and I need to do something. And so we discussed it and I had seen in Vancouver, uh, Vancouver Island, uh, these uh, temple, uh, not temple, um, totem pole carvers. Um, and was very, they were quite well known. And they... Um, I was very attracted to this. Uh, I'd done a certain amount of uh, carving of spoons <laughs> on the beaches of Vancouver Island um, and selling them and stuff very briefly that summer. And so I'd found out that there was a an art college in uh, Kennington in London, South London, that uh, taught wood carving. So I asked... Uh, and my parents kindly agreed to uh, send me there. Uh, it wasn't very expensive. Uh, 
in those days. And I sort of lived on, I think my rent was four pounds a week. I lived on about 10 pounds a week or something. Um, and so I studied, started to study wood carving there. So it was quite a journey from uh, intellectual happiness in Colombia to um, being a bit silly, uh, well, worse than silly, illegal, or being associated with somebody who did something illegal. And then uh, the sort of the state comes crashing down on you. Uh, but I kind of worked out a way of getting out of it, I suppose, and, and progressing in a different direction. That must have been quite devastating. <laughs> yeah. Not to mention arriving in London, being unable to contact anybody, your parents who could help you. Yeah. With no money, homeless. Mm. That's quite that's quite a uh, change of circumstance from Colombia. Yeah. yeah, it is. Suddenly, abruptly and roughly. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Yeah. I managed it, though. It's. Uh... I think, you see... Mm. I have uh, grandchildren now, and one of them's uh, the eldest is 15, my boy. And it made me think, um, oh, what um, uh, what did I get up to at 15? Well, sometimes in the holidays, I mean, my parents were in Holland. Uh, I, in the half-term holidays, I would just go off hitchhiking. Um, in those days, it just sounds ridiculous now, perhaps. But in those days, you could just... I remember having a friend, uh, when I was at the art school, uh, we were sharing a house, and uh, this fellow said, uh, he was a musician, he said, I want to go to Greece. He had £10. He set off for Greece. <laughs> uh, hitchhiking. And, uh, it sounds incredible now, um, but uh, and he made it. And you know, two, three weeks later, he came back. Um, I, I don't know how he, you know, fed himself and stuff, but uh, there was a kind of freewheeling uh, atmosphere around. Uh, in in some respects, yeah. In some respects, there wasn't uh, those things that happened in New York sometimes. There was, as we know now, there's both the good and the bad. As there usually is. Um, yeah. So it was quite, uh, but I don't think, I suppose it did accentuate that slight searching thing. Uh, yeah, I, I can definitely recall this feeling of um, there must be something, there must be something. <laughs> and I, kind of need to find it <laughs> um, which is a strange feeling but um, I think that's you know so I got engaged on the practical level with the wood carving which is something I felt I could I, I loved I liked doing I could do I didn't really think about the commercial uh, aspects of it um, but the uh, I continued to um, follow on that sort of slightly spiritual searching thing um i used to go to the druids <laughs> meetings um there is actually a photograph of i, I mean i'm in a photograph 
of the Druids at Stonehenge, um, it just so happened that the Times uh, was there that day and they put it in, uh, in page three or something. Um, and I happened to be there. Um, so I was kind of involved. I was a bit of a butterfly, you know, going, you know, just really looking, I suppose, you know, uh, the Druids and then looking at uh, Zen a bit more, getting involved in karate. Uh, and then uh, sort of gradually uh, gravitating towards uh, Tibetan Buddhism. You worked as a woodcarver for 15 years or so? Yes, at least, yes, yes. Mm. And you were in Germany for a period of time also? Uh, yeah. yeah, that's true. Yeah, the woodcarving, I... Uh, just too much of a butterfly, really. The um, I did the course... Uh, for a year or two, and then the uh, locally in uh, Bermondsey, there was a firm, E.J. Bradford, it was called. They were sort of architectural decoration, and they would supply over the river to the city um, because usually, you know, that's where the money was for the grand buildings. Um, they would supply plaques and uh, bits of sculpture that goes on walls um you know in the city they have when you enter the city there's those dragons uh no griffins sorry griffins uh sort of fierce animals uh either as a coat of arms or just sort of sitting there on a post of some sort uh we did those that, that was the kind of things we did that was in plastic uh, fiberglass uh in what some of them are metal but you didn't do the metal so much um it was the days of fiberglass, and I did the wood side. Uh, but uh, sorry, this firm, I <laughs> I used to work at Bermondsey Antiques uh, as a student. Uh, Bermondsey Antiques Fair uh, Market. It was on a Friday. I used to help set it up. You know, there are people who turn up at three o'clock in the morning to put up the um, the posts and then the tables for these markets to run. And as a student, it you know, meant a bit of money. So I would turn up. And then I got talking to somebody and he said, uh, I said, you know, I was studying to be a woodcarver. And he said, oh, there's this firm down the road in Bermondsey that uh, they're looking for a woodcarver. They've just got a contract with uh, the Houses of Parliament. So I went round there and I wasn't, you know, really qualified uh, enough, but perhaps I had some talent i suppose and the um uh i applied for the job and i got it uh, they gave me a trial to start with and i seemed to they gave me the sort of easy jobs and uh i got the job and uh, stayed there for a couple of years and at some point i decided to uh go to germany to oberammergau in uh, bavaria where they're famous for would go they're famous for the uh, plays, uh, the Christian plays that happen every 10 years there. And in between, the, they make money, the village, the town makes money by having a lot of woodcarvers there and people buy the religious work. Uh, so I went there for a while. This was 74 by now. And uh, if you remember the uh, 
the oil crisis happened in uh, in 74 and there was a sort of consequent shrinking of economies and uh, being the first in to this firm in Oberammergau uh, I was first out as well <laughs> and being a foreigner too uh, it wasn't you know we went we were in Europe but not uh, you still had it was still quite different in a way and uh, so I came back yeah and besides I had a um, uh, a girlfriend had uh, written to me in Germany to say that um, I'd fathered a child with her so uh, I needed to come back for that anyway yes big change again mm. That must have been quite a surprise. Yes. <laughs> yes, it was. Yes. So, yeah, we have to come back and deal with that. Uh, and uh, got a, at the time, Ken Livingston, of all people, was um, head of the GLC yeah, in those days. And they'd uh, got a program where uh, we had been, before I'd gone to Germany, we had been living in a squat, um, uh, you know, an empty shop. And the uh, uh, they had a program for getting people out of the slum. This was in Bonington Square in Vauxhall, uh, now quite yuppified. Uh, the uh, a program to get people out of London um, and they would help them uh, buy a house. Uh, you know, it would be a small house and it was sort of subsidized mortgage, basically. So it was five thousand pounds you had to apply. And um so she did most of the work uh, on that. She was good at um applying. And uh the paperwork, she was a talented artist. The um the so we uh, yes, got a house for £5,000 in Essex, a wee cottage, and paid £30 a month, I think, as the, uh, as the mortgage. And that was uh, subsidised uh, by the GLC. And then um, Alistair was born. And I had no money. <laughs> but uh, the, uh, yes, I managed to find a I don't remember what I did for a while. Anyway, we kind of cobbled things together, but fairly soon there was a, a furniture company about uh, five or six miles away, and they had uh, wood carving. They did reproduction antique furniture, and so I managed to get a job. I used to have to cycle then, cycle back, and I did that for a little while, and then set up on started. I felt it was time to start on my own, so. Uh, I set up on my own after that. And what was the status of your search at that time? Yeah, this is, um, well, looking after a child uh, takes up a lot of energy and, and time. Um, and getting work, working for yourself is... Uh, it's also very time consuming, as I'm sure you know. <laughs> um, the uh, 
Yeah, the I would still go to. Oh, by this time, I'd found uh, out a bit more about Tibetan Buddhism. Now, back as a student in London, sharing this house, uh, I had. Oh, I'd gone. There was some. There was an Indian. I think he was sixteen or something, and he was supposed to be terrific. I can't even remember his name. But there were, you know, there were various people, and he came to London, and I went a couple of times, but I didn't feel any connection. Um, but I, and then I went to the Buddhist Society, um, where actually, uh, when was this? Seventy two, seventy one. So in 2023, what's that, 52 years later, I am talking there next week <laughs> about, guess what, uh, Karmapakshi <laughs> uh, for their anniversary day. And they're 99 years old. Uh, the, uh, not quite that much. The, uh, so I'd been going to them as well for meditation instruction um buddhist uh, i'd gone to the buddhist place in uh, um, wimbledon too so there was a sort of general and uh my uh, this hadn't happened quite yet no the and he said oh you're interested in this uh here's a book as you did in those days <laughs> you probably still people probably still do you might be interested in this and it was uh Trumpa Rinpoche's uh, cutting through spiritual materialism, and it was uh, it, it had quite a uh, as it did on a lot of people, I think, um, quite a sort of direct effect. And I read it and said, "Oh, that's terrific! You know, I've got a lot from that." Uh, and he said, "Well, they's, he's up in Scotland. <laughs> Would you believe?" Uh, this you know Tibetan center, and so in one of the I think the Easter break of from college in the wood carving place, uh, I decided to you know make a trip up there hitchhiking. Uh, only I didn't go <clears throat> direct. I went through Wales and up through Ireland. It was a bit of a scenic trip. Uh, ended up in Northern Ireland in a slightly odd situations with. Um, it was when, uh, you know, the troubles were at their height, really. There, this wandering Englishman, English boy, turns up. But I fortunate—I was—I think now I was really quite fortunate. There was one incident I was quite fortunate. Um, I just kind of—I um, think they saw that I was completely innocent of, of anything. Um, this was not—I I suspect that they were. Uh, um, IRA people, but um, anyway, let's leave that. The uh, so I made it across Stranra to uh, Estomir and went to the uh, Buddhist center. And of course, Trumpa Ramche had only just left <laughs> uh, the previous winter. I arrived in the Easter, and uh, it was Akon Ramche there, and I was sort of fiddling about in the workshops there. Um, doing a bit of carving, actually, and I'd brought my tools with me. And he immediately said, would you like to come and work here? <laughs> I said, yeah, sure. So uh, I said, but I'm, I'm going to college. I'm going to go 
back and I'll come up in the summer. So I then went back to college and, you know, eventually went to Germany. And I, I went back and forth to Samueling uh, a number of times. And Agronomist uh, started teaching uh, and I would go to those teachings that he would have in the winter or the summer. And so I'd kept that connection. And then I made a connection with uh, Chimmy Rimache. And he had a place in uh, Ashton, in uh, near South from Walden in Essex. And I would go there. Um, and uh, so there was that connection. And then the Kamapa came in 74. Uh, Alistair was born in early, um, late 74. And it was about the time that... Um, yeah, actually, we went to see him when she was still pregnant with him. And uh, so we went to Ash, uh, Marpa House in Ashton, and then we also went up to uh, Samuel Ling as well. And the Kamapa at the time was would be giving initiations in the Kamapakshi practice. And I would, uh, and he would every, you know, very often he would say to people, people say, you know, what, shall I do? What Buddhist practice shall I do? People were generally quite ingenue about the whole thing. And uh, he would say, do the Kamapakshi uh, practice. And that kind of struck me at the time. That was my sort of first introduction, shall we say. So there was, a, but I'd, uh, and then I started doing what are called the preliminary practices, um, which were quite difficult to do as a householder as well, uh, you know, doing the prostrations and so forth. Um, the uh, So I did that. So, the, yeah, I, I suppose I'd really made a, uh, I mean, I had taken refuge by then. Uh, I had made a commitment to uh, Tibetan Buddhism. I'd, I'd stopped um, searching, really. At that time, uh, you said that Samuel Ling didn't have, when you initially were there, mm. I think I said orbiting before, you know, sort of being around, yes, working yes, a bit. Yeah. Um, didn't have such a practice emphasis, more sort of communal living yes. emphasis at that time. Mm -hmm. Although Shara Paldon was there, the the famous yes. artist. Um, yes. So I'm wondering what what was what was the scene like really, and uh, did you connect at all with uh, Shara Paldon? What do you think of him? No, it was some. Um, that's a source of regret, actually, on my part. Uh, I mean. I knew him, of course, um, and we would speak and we went, uh, he was on the same party that went on pilgrimage in 1980 with Agron and 20 or 30 uh, people from Samiling. Um, and he knew, you know, what I did. I did the wood carving there and so forth, but he, he never asked me, he never, it was really, <laughs> I don't know why. Um, just never did. He he um, uh, got a, a French uh, uh, woodcarver to, and he worked with him quite a lot. Um, but for some reason, he never did with me. Uh, and yeah, I don't, I don't know. I don't know why. I just kind of waited and waited and waited, <laughs> but uh, it never happened. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it was quite a, a time. Uh, sort of, let's say, uh, where are we? 72 or 3, uh, somewhere around there. Um, 
the first the previous Kalu Rimache uh, came, and I think I'm right in saying he was the first of the lamas to come direct from India. You know, sort of high lamas, um, and we just we didn't know what people didn't know how to greet him. Uh, we didn't really know what refuge was. We took refuge uh, with him there because it was kind of recommended. Um, but we really went, and he would give a certain amount of teaching, and we would do. But uh, well, this is just my impression. Uh, other people may say quite different, uh, but didn't really know. Uh, there was a sort of general bonhomie usually, um, and but not really so much commitment. I think uh, Agronomche then started uh, giving people teaching and sort of, I think Trumper to a certain extent in, you know, you know, in a parallel way in the United States was kind of tidying people up <laughs> from their, um, their messy, uh, quasi hippie-ish ways, I suppose, um, and getting them to think a bit more seriously about, um, you know, working with mind. I've heard you say that the the charisma of the 16th Karmapa struck yes. you. Great yes. Yes. I'm wondering yes. about about that. Actually, uh, in terms of your involvement in Tibetan Buddhism, and this is where it really uh, took root. Um, was there anything in Tibetan Buddhism itself, say doctrinally, perhaps even aesthetically that drew you or was it sort of confluence of this interesting Johnson House Samueling mm. project was happening and you sort of got involved with that and there are some charismatic gurus that struck you and you know and then doctrinal discovery came later you've said that you didn't really know what was you know going on Kali Rinpoche came you didn't know how to greet him you weren't really yes. How could you have known, of course? But of course, over time, you began to learn more and more and more about the religion and its various tenets and so on. Mm. Um, so I suppose I've got two questions. What is it do you think that got you at the beginning? What was it that kept you interested in it at the beginning? Presumably, it couldn't have been any understanding necessarily because you didn't have it at that point. And then mm. how did your understanding unfold? What, what was that journey like from not really knowing what was going on to getting more and more understanding of of what it was all about. Hmm. I think there was, you've put it well, there was a sort of confluence of, but I think also uh, reading uh, books was quite important as well. Um, for instance, you know, taking refuge with Carla Rimitre in a sort of ignorant way, I would say of myself anyway, um, not really understanding what that was about. I then went back to uh, a year or so later to Agronomche and said, can I take refuge again? Because I think I understand it a bit better now. And he said, yes, by all means, but you have to do a three-day retreat as well, uh, if you can. So I did that. Um, and I remember, oh, three days in retreat was just torture for um, you know a mind that was very flitting about, I suppose. Um, yeah, I was quite, I found that very difficult. And now, you know, eight years is, um, well, it has its difficulties, excuse me. So I, 
and I remember in that time, uh, I couldn't meditate particularly well. Uh, well, not well at all. The So I did read quite a lot of, uh, for instance, uh, Gampopa's, the translation of Gampopa's uh, Jewel Ornament of Liberation by uh, Gunther, which isn't all that easy. <laughs> it's Gunther, um, uh, easier read in some ways. But the the way that the Buddhist teaching uh, uh, was worked out, I, uh, you know, I'd come across that in the Buddhist society, the more direct, just the Buddha teaching, rather than the, you know, the tantric stuff that comes, uh, the colourful, exotic tantra um, stuff as well. Uh, and that really appealed to me, and it seemed to work things out for my mind, um, that uh, I felt, you know, this really is thought out, is logical, um, and there's a certain amount of belief in uh, reincarnation and so forth, and karma, I suppose, is a belief, um, but the uh, the ways about, you know, oriented, you know, it's uh, it's not trying to it somewhere else necessarily but more just dealing with what's inside better um, and that orientation uh, appealed to me and then you've got somebody like i mean the karma is, is just highly unusual um it's one way of putting it and very inspirational too um so that was that combination of, you know, the basic that you could see, well, it seemed to me anyway, you could see some people that were swept along by that charisma almost entirely, perhaps. Um, and I don't know what's happened uh, since for them. Maybe it's been excellent for them. Uh, but for me, uh, there was a sort of, there's a certain element of grounding in the and perhaps too much the intellectual I don't know um, side of things that uh, oh this made sense you know, that made sense as well uh, and then on top of it you've got this uh, attractive slightly exotic um, um, Tibetan Buddhism culture which I you know, I very much enjoyed you met several different lamas and high lamas at that period. What was it you think that set apart the 16th Karmapa in terms of his his impact or his sort of radius of charisma? Mm. It is charisma. It's a, I mean, what is charisma? It's, it's difficult. I mean, it can be in a sort of secular way. Um, I, there's a, an old friend from Samuel Ling who used to work <laughs> used to work in the casinos in the 60s in London. And he said um, there was a couple of people that had it. One of them, he says, was Sammy Davis Jr. He'd walk into a room and whoosh, you know, there's that effect, um, which is peculiar. I mean, how does that happen? Um, who was the other one? I think it was Frank Sinatra. Yeah. And possibly Sophia Loren. I, I can't remember now but that uh, you know you hear stories of uh what 
I mean, they must be quite ordinary in their homes, you know, in their slippers, having breakfast. Uh, but somehow, when they walk into a room, I'd spent quite some, I was quite fortunate to spend quite some time uh, with the 16th Kamapa uh, in eventually in uh, Sikkim, in Rumtek, his monastery there, um, you know, having breakfast with him. Uh, and he was, uh, he was still very special. <laughs> Uh, even at breakfast, you know. Um, I don't know. It's a sort of power. Um, I wouldn't analyze it terribly, but I wouldn't also go overboard about it, you know, get swept away too. I think um, it's, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I just experience it, I think. You know, it's, it's hard to put into words. Charisma, I think, is. When I think of charisma, anyway, mm. I think uh, it's um, there's something collaborative about it. Mm. You can't really be charism charismatic to yourself only, um, <laughs> I presume. So there's always that question of um, some people seem to have something that's right, mm. and other people, I think, one catches the charisma vicariously from others looking at them. This is celebrities, for example. Uh, mm. I've noticed that mm. yes. occasionally, some, because someone is seen to be important and a big deal. They might even themselves shy away. It gives them a cer certain kind of shine or something where everyone's orients towards them. Suddenly that, that imparts something as well. Yes. Um, charisma, isn't it mm. a gift of God or something like that? There's something divine about it too. Isn't it implies yeah. some, some sort of spiritual? So certainly with this 16th Karmapa, mm. highly revered, mm -hmm. that's, that's the collaborative part, but mm. also presumably one acquires that kind of power and potency um, through esoteric means? Yes. Yes. I mean, people refer to it as blessing. There is, I mean, there is something that happens, you know. It's like this hole in the top of your head. <laughs> um, and, yeah, there's that sort of energy that happens um, either thinking about such a person or being in their presence. It starts with being in their presence, I suppose. Um, and that's the spiritual side, I think. Uh, yeah, it's, I, I can't put it into words, but that can develop by working on the mind. And there are these practices that help in that way. Um, they're quite repetitive, often. Um, they're to do with imagination, certainly in the tantric uh, practice. There's quite a lot of imagination. One has to become quite adept at that, I think, um, which you know, when we read books, we have imagination. You know, we, uh, we imagine the whole scenario through the print. Uh, so that aspect of our mind, our brain, uh, works to a certain extent. But in meditation practices to do with visualizations, um, I think that that is enhanced. It's a sort of way of getting to a different 
place gradually. Um, and it's not just that, though. Um, one could say, oh, it's a it's mental exercises. Uh, there is actually, there's a blessing involved. And it seems to be, when they talk about transmission and lineage and very, how so important they are, um, it's the be all and end all in some ways, um, because it does go back apparently, to the Buddha himself. And there was an extraordinary um, being. And if some of that blessing can come to us, then that's uh, that's what these practices are, are sort of about. There's an element of self-training, self-training the mind, but also making a connection to something that's uh, incredibly, well, not incredibly, just is pure. Um, and that is the very powerful thing. I would say that, yeah, there was that sort of, uh, the manifestation of it was this charismatic power. But I, as much as I can put it into words, uh, think that it comes from purity. Um, the purity of mind. Somebody who was, uh, we all have pure minds, but somebody who was, um, uh, had actually sort of realized his pure mind, I suppose. And that is very powerful. What was the 16th Karmapa like at breakfast? And uh, <laughs> you said it can be taken a bit far. This sort of impact can blow people out a little and take it, mm. take it a bit far. I'm wondering what you had in mind when you said that too. So there's two questions. Yeah. Um, yeah, maybe that, yeah, no, I, I stand by that. The, oh, well, breakfast, <laughs> just, uh, just so calm and gentle. Oh, occasionally issuing, you know, uh, dealing with practical things, an order or request or something, but, um, it was just, uh, it's hard to put into words. Just very nice. Uh, but I I wouldn't get soppy about it. <laughs> you know, I was quite practical, would joke a little bit. Um, wasn't uh, entirely just gaga um, about the whole. And I think that's maybe why, to a certain extent, you know, I was able to uh, be present um, it was a it was a slightly unusual time. This is nineteen eighty eighty one eighty one I think early eighty one. Um, and Sharma MJ was there. Sitter MJ Jamgun Control, the one who's well, Sharma and Jamgun Control is dead now. Uh, and Gelsa, they were all there at the time, so I was quite fortunate. Um, and uh, yeah. I'm sorry, I got a bit lost thinking about it. <laughs> Let's go back uh, one year from there. Yes. 1980, you said that there was a pilgrimage from Samueling that mm. you went on, but you went mm. on that pilgrimage with something of a heavy intention. Yes. 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 It's, um, 
Well, uh, Maggie, um, Alistair's mother, uh, we were living. So, well, there was trouble, but she, anyway, she um, she developed cancer, and it was very awkward, very difficult. Uh, breast cancer. The uh, she, well, we were treated quite. Um, things were quite difficult, and there was only one in the whole of London at that time in the whole hospital system. There was only one cancer. Um, what would they call it? Consultant, not consultant, uh, not in medical sense, but um, uh, advisor. You know, some uh, somebody you could um, uh, go and speak to. And of course, there were you know things had changed then, and it was very uh, you do what the doctor tells you or not. And she was uh, unfortunately she didn't. Rather, she sort of went looking for alternative uh, things. And anyway, it's. Uh, it's a sad story. It took, you know, they said at the time, uh, it'll take three or four years and uh, you don't do anything. You did more of the alternative things and they didn't work. And, uh, but at, in 1979, when the pilgrimage started, when was it 1980? 1980. Uh, 1980 uh, she was kind of, um, it, it was the beginning of the end. There was a sort of denial going on and I don't know maybe I was it was a mistake on my part but um, I thought that I would accept them um, you know in the families and it all became very difficult um, I accepted that she was going to die and I thought that if I could go to these holy sites and um, pray on her behalf. may sound a bit silly, you know. But, um, it may have some good influence for her. Um, just in the sense, I mean, I don't think, I didn't have the idea that it was going to uh, cure her in any way. Um, but it was, yeah, I don't know. Maybe it was part of my, uh, I wouldn't use the word trauma, but, you know, difficulty in, in relating to the whole thing. Young person, I was rather on my own in a way. I mean, the families were there, but it kind of, there was a certain amount of conflict going on and anxiety as well, and anxiety about the child. So I did decide to go. It was supposed to be for a few weeks. Um, a couple of months, was it? I can't remember now. Um, and uh, she went to live with her sister for a bit. And, and I made it back. Uh, she was still alive. But um, yeah, maybe it wasn't a, a good episode on my part. Um, but that's that's what I felt at the time. What was the conflict that was going on? Oh, it's sort of, there was, you know, sister, uh, well, you can see uh, she didn't want to have operations and they were insisting, you know, the family would be insisting. There'd be all these phone calls and I would try and talk to her for 
ages about it. Um, I mean, trying to be some kind of cancer con advisor in a way, um, which I had no experience of. I, you know, I, I was just a, a very ordinary person. The um, and so I would get her into a well, not get her, but we would come to some almost resolution about well, yes. Maybe we should, maybe we should have the operation. And then she would speak on the phone with the family and then it would all kind of blow up and <laughs> you'd sort of be back to square one and no, I'm not going to do it. And, you know, it was just difficult. That's just my take on it. Um, other members of the families maybe see it quite differently. But I, yeah, I didn't. Perhaps I didn't deal with it very well. In fact, yeah, I fully admit that yeah, I, I didn't. My only mitigation was that I was young and somewhat and didn't have much support. I didn't feel that I had much support in the way I was trying to deal with this. You know, How old were you at that time? I was uh, 29, yeah, 29, which I suppose is old enough to deal with that kind of thing. But the, the hospital experience was usually um, not good. I mean, it didn't help that she was kind of uh, got their backs up to a certain extent. And once you start getting the medical professions backs up, I think, that, you know, everybody, the medics, <laughs> the patients, everybody's moved on quite a lot from that. They've learnt quite a lot. It's really quite different. Macmillan and all of that um, wonderful, wonderful stuff that they do. Um, our understanding how to deal with it. Um, it was just unfortunate, well, more than unfortunate, um, tragic really, that uh, it wasn't dealt with better. And there's no, I don't feel uh, myself uh, blame anywhere. Uh, and that's not a very deliberate intention not to feel. Um, the only person that, you know, perhaps I think could have acted better uh, is myself on this. And I'm not doing that as a sort of um, deliberate sympathy invoking mea culpa. Um, it's just true. Um, and there's not much I can do about it. So kind of have to live with that. Because you went to India, is that? Uh, the, yeah, I wouldn't say that that was necessarily a mistake, but uh, it wasn't necessarily the wisest thing to do. <laughs> oh, I'm quibbling, really. Yeah, it's... Um, yeah. But what you see, you knew she was going to die, and there was just some kind of hope. <laughs> uh, yeah, it was a it was a desperate not last throw of the dice, but something like that, you know. It was my way of coping, I suppose, was to perhaps invoke some kind of blessing and 
but it did it, it it bred a bad reaction you see which wasn't sensible on my part and i should have just changed uh changed my mind about it but i didn't so that, that was a mistake in that sense yeah not being flexible enough Maggie died in May of 1980. Yes. And what happened next? What happened to you? What happened to Alistair? Yeah. Well, it goes into sort of family um, tugs. And um, yeah. Uh, while on the pilgrimage, uh, I had asked about uh, becoming a monk, and uh, they'd, well, I hadn't actually asked, I'd asked about taking some vows and then been re recommended to become a monk, and so that's kind of how it happened. Um, and they, so I did, and so I came back as a a, a monk, and then she died um, about a month or so later. Uh, and then there's a tug between, you have two, uh, my mother and um, Maggie's, uh, excuse me, <coughs> uh, sister. Two strong females, uh, very maternal. And that's my interpretation anyway. Uh, what to do with the child and so my i was actually oh i got messy sort of solicitors and so i won't go into all of that but the the kind of upshot in my terms anyway was that uh i couldn't really take them to court about this i didn't feel that was a good thing to do and get even messier and I felt that if he was with me it would be a slightly strange experience and he was missing his mother uh, and that a female influence was uh, extremely important and so it then became almost uh, an argument between should he go with the sister or should he go with my mother? And I made the case that it should be um, with the mother. But they both wanted to uh, look after him. They didn't think that I was, uh, it was suitable to be with a, a monk in a monastic environment. Uh, well, at Samueling. Samueling wasn't so monastic in those days. Um, and so he uh, uh, stayed with my mother. They had the uh, a, a large house, uh, and she uh, kindly looked after him uh, for the spirit. And I would go and see him uh, quite a bit. And I suppose, I don't know, it's, um, you could see all of this as being my unspoken way of dealing with uh, this kind of tragedy, trauma. Mm. 
Um, it's like almost like a running away in a way. Uh, it could be seen that way anyway. I didn't feel necessarily that way. But the, uh, and then the, you know, a few years later, that Sam Ling was going through a very good period at this time of having lots of uh, uh, very excellent teachers coming, Tranga Rinpoche, Sitra Rinpoche, Gyalza Rinpoche, Sharma Rinpoche, um, and giving, you know, extensive teachings and so forth. So that was very good. And Alistair would come in the summer holidays uh, and stay with me. But the um, then the, uh, the idea of doing retreat came up. And again, maybe, I don't know, I just felt that I should. And he had got settled in, you know, three or four years later uh, into this. And I was kind of, there was a kind of dichotomy going on in these different environments. And I thought maybe it was just better if he had um, the environment that he was in there. Um, and that I pursue my path. Uh, again, perhaps selfish, I don't know, or perhaps coping. Um, hard to make a judgment, really. Well, hard for me, anyway. But I'm aware of those ways of interpreting it. And the uh, so I decided to join the first group. It was quite a small group, six, seven people, to do this um, lengthy retreat. So that was the first. Yeah. Ended up well, three-year retreat, but then it was actually four. Yes, retreat, four years. How, yeah. how it was organised um, mm. in the UK, not in Europe. I think there was the first was in France, perhaps. Yes, that's true. Yes. Um, yes. And uh, there was some preparation involved in that, among which mm. was I don't know if this was directly in preparation. Six months in France with Kempo Tsuchum Gyamso learning uh, Tibetan. That must yeah. have happened. Shortly, yes, it did. Actually, uh, Maggie was there. This was, um, oh, this was 77, something like that. This was after the Karmapa's uh second visit to Europe, yeah. And um, that, no, that's quite a, a separate thing. Um, there was this course in uh, in Europe and uh, at uh, in France, La Poujade, da, uh, near Daprocacu Ling. That was sort of starting up at the time, early mid seventies, and the um, yeah, with uh, Kempo Sutton Kempo, and that was uh, that was excellent as well. Yeah, it was a good experience, but that's quite different. Yeah, the preparation for the retreat. Yeah, they I think they made it six months. They said six months. Uh, the idea was that you would have to learn uh, to read Tibetan, uh, and if possible, speak it as well, uh, because the Lama, his English wasn't good, and the uh, you would learn uh, what was going to be done as well. It was all very new, uh, so we did um, a certain amount of preparation for it uh, to learn to. I think I was yeah I was reading Tibetan already by then, but for some people they hadn't because everything was going to be done uh, in Tibetan the the rituals and prayers and so forth, um, and he would instruct in Tibetan. Uh, eventually, we did get a 
a translator. It was just too difficult for some people. Um, well, it was difficult for me as well. But uh, that's how it uh, started off, yeah. And I can remember going around the building uh, before the start and thinking, oh, this is going to be wonderful meditation all day long. <laughs> and in fact, there's a terrific amount of uh, ritual involved. And it wasn't sort of, you know, you're isolated, but just sharing the, the meals and the building together. Um, to a certain extent, what the interactions between the people was extremely important. Um, you learned as much <laughs> outside the room as you did inside the room, I think. Yeah. Uh, and I think generally people have recognized that in a group retreat, um, you can get high, shall we say, on meditation, uh, very peaceful and so forth, and then you've got to deal with somebody else um, or interact with somebody else uh, who maybe isn't uh, having such a good time or finds you objectionable or there's some kind of conflict, or maybe you have a bad time. You come out and um, in the breaks and cause other people problems, yeah. It's 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 a group situation, and the group part of it is extremely important. The learning that you go through in the group as well, highly valuable. Yeah, I wonder if you might say something about uh, more about that. You know, I'm thinking about Karmapakshi as you were talking there. Mm -hmm. His retreats, which you mm -hmm. write about, he had a period of time of retreat before he he. He, his uh, monastery building or rebuilding activities. Yes. It seems it was mostly sort of sort of solitary in the sense that it was his retreat and he may have been in different places and supported by people and he wasn't sort of totally isolated, but it was more mm. or less his, for want of a better word, solo retreat. Yes. Context, yeah. Mm. And, um, and then I'm thinking of your situation there, a group retreat kind of um, curriculum one goes through, uh, uh, yes. as far as I understand, you go through a certain kind of curriculum, and Akon mm -hmm. Rinpoche extended that curriculum mm -hmm. uh, in, in certain ways, which is why it took nine months more than the usual mm -hmm. three months, uh, three years, three days, three minutes, three seconds, <laughs> whatever it is, three breaths. <laughs> and uh, and um, so I'm wondering about that, uh, what you think of that group versus format versus sort of solo format, and uh, to what extent that kind of group dynamic um, well, you said it, it was a help, an important part of it, actually. Mm. What if it might also be thought of as a hindrance? The reason I ask is there are also lots of these three-year retreats that were going on around that time in Canada. And I've spoken to some people from there. Mm -hmm. And it uh, seems to be pretty 50-50 on whether they thought it was beneficial or kind of a waste of time slash actively um, detrimental mm. to them. Some mm. people, I think, felt that. Well, some people have said to me they felt that way. This sort of three-year retreat, they went into it. You might the other side kind of regret regretted having doing it. Oh, gosh! Uh, wow. I've heard that. Oh. I've heard that one, one person said to me, "It's about fifty-fifty. Those that benefited to some degree, and yeah, might have, been, might have been how it was going on there, but yeah, yeah. Part part of what the, they they I remember the complaints were. Mm -hmm. Uh. 
this might be an odd way of me asking this question, but and, no, um, go on. So part of what the complaints were was, well, our guiding llama was rarely there and didn't take much. There was a sense I've heard the complaint. There wasn't much personal interest taken in my practice. You know, sort of we were all kind of funneled from group activity to group activity. Um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Our, you know, guiding llama was always away doing other things and um, that sort of thing. And the people I was with, it was very you know, abrasive and difficult, et cetera, et cetera. So mm -hmm. I think there's, yeah. So anyway, um, of course, other people I know have had wonderful experiences in those early, those early uh, American and European, I suppose, if you can count a North American and European three years. Mm -hmm. So anyway, what can you make of all that that I've just said? Yeah, <laughs> I, I'm slightly surprised uh, also that you'd put it so high as well. But um, uh, I don't know. I don't think, I mean, it was very, very difficult. <laughs> There's the, um, you wouldn't really want it to be easy, I suppose. Uh, you're dealing with your internal S-H-I-T. <laughs> you know, um, and it's quite raw. Yeah. And you're to a certain extent, you're dealing with other people's as well. I mean, you can never entirely deal with somebody else's. And I can see a little bit the feeling of um you're left on your own a bit. Uh and there was a in the second retreat there was um a point where I felt that, um, and I, I have to be careful here because I don't want to make it seem like, you know, it's some kind of self-justification or anything. But the there was a point where you get about halfway through and some of the instructions of the visualizations just weren't there or they were you know if you looked for them in tibetan but it hadn't been well explained and i i would say that that was uh, perhaps a, a bit of a fault if you like um and it seemed just this this is my interpretation the that this was building up to quite a lot of frustration not necessarily um expressed directly but people didn't really, some of the people anyway, the, the second time, the, the people in the second retreat, not the second timers, but the, the new people in the second retreat, they um, they weren't getting the same instruction uh, from the Lama that uh, we had had the first time people. And so what I did and it may have been for myself a, a bit of a mistake because it involved getting involved in all of this but uh, rather than just focusing on the practice but uh, I translated some of the instructions the visualization material as much what, what I thought was important and got it um, printed out um, you know 
had to send it away to get printed out and so forth. Uh, and it seemed like as soon as that happened the first time for uh, as Chakrasambara practice, uh, it kind of dissipated all of that energy that was going on. Now, anybody who was there may find that incredulous, <laughs> incredible, but uh, you know they may see it as a different story. But that's just what my feeling was, um, that there was a certain amount of, uh, there wasn't perhaps, and this may just be partly us Westerners, Molly Cuddleton and so forth, um, that we were to a certain extent left to work things out. Uh, and I would say that the valuable part of being left to work things out is the emotional side and your own hang-ups and what you discover within and all that. Um, but the actual instruction, you know, you imagine the lights going here and there and, and all of that, that really needed uh, more something better to be it probably is worked out now you know there's been an accretion of instructions uh, printed and so forth the uh but so that people can actually read it and then apply it but yeah i can see that maybe a, a slight um disgruntlement there about that but the the other side of uh, the actual just working with emotions, uh, I wouldn't begrudge that, although it was extremely difficult at times, yeah. I did have somebody threaten to kill me at one point, um, which you wouldn't imagine in a retreat. Um, but I don't know how seriously he meant it. But he was having a hard time. Yeah. Uh, and you just have to deal with it. It's okay now. I met him later. It's fine. <laughs> and I'm still here. <laughs> so, yeah. so I'm curious, having never done a group retreat like that. Mm -hmm. Of course, there's all sorts of ritual and then there's that you do as a group. And then Presumably, you go you go to your rooms and you have a certain amount of things you, that you're doing in, mm. in the time when you're by yourself. Um, yes. When, well, there's some other factors too. You're isolated from your usual routine and comforts and connections. You're in this place with other people, and you know, do, two doors down doesn't rinse the sink out when he brushes teeth, that sort of thing. And <laughs> um, where does the Where's this, where, why does the personal SHIT, as you put it, come up? Is it is something in the practices themselves that brings them up? Mm -hmm. Other practices introspective in the sense of you're sitting there thinking about your SHIT in particular. I mean, if you're visualizing lights coming out from, you know, doing all these sort of visualizations, how does that, how does that work on the inside in terms of, one's issues i'm curious as to how that comes up is it the is it the being locked in a a room uh, locked in a house with people or is it the practice themselves or is it the isolation mm. um, is it the is it the food <laughs> <laughs> what is what what is how does that 
Yeah. Well, you're. It's not people's normal life, is it? Um, we usually, you know, oh, I'm a bit bored. I'll go and do something. Uh, uh, I'd like to eat this. Uh, all of those kind of distractions, and uh, and that gets narrowed down quite a lot. And you sort of have, a, you know, that initial three-day <laughs> retreat that it was just like at the age of, I don't know, what was it, 21 or something. Um, that was torture, I found. <laughs> I mean, I would complain about that one. <laughs> and I was on my own, you know. But uh, no, once you you go into this group thing, it's, I mean, there there's some wonderful, wonderful, uh, when people are working together, uh, teamwork, uh, you know, I very much, I really like teamwork, uh, and the when it goes well, of course. Um, the I don't know why should it? Well, you are dealing with, uh, you are trying to change yourself um, in a way. Yeah, you are. Um, and the commitment is, you know, changing for the sake of all. But, um, And you are looking at yourself. I don't mean, you know, you're thinking, but this does happen, of course, but it's not deliberate. You know, that's not sort of meant to be part of it. You're meant to be focusing on these pure deities um, and the meditations. And it's the mind. You're you're dealing with a mind um, difficult, as we all know. Um, I think it it seems very obvious now to me. But as I say, I went and looked, you know, at the empty building before we started, and thought, oh, it's going to be so peaceful and film uh, it largely on my own, um, and just, there was a kind of running away, I suppose, yeah. Um, but it was actually quite confrontational in aspect in some ways. Uh, but uh, not all the time, I, w I would hasten to add, yeah. It wasn't misery all the time. Uh, people would go up, people would go down, people would deal with it, and then suddenly, you know, they work it out. And it was, uh, I can't say, I mean, my mother did ask me at one point, sort of, you know, we were in the kitchen and um, she, uh, it was a year or two afterwards, she said, uh, you know, what, what do you think about it now? And I said, well, it's the best thing I've ever done, you know. Um, and I don't mean that in the way of achieving anything, but just, it was um, it was the most worthwhile thing, I suppose, is the best way to put it, yeah. What did you face in there? I've heard you talk about having almost sort of choke or heart attacks. Oh, gosh. Uh, things yes. like that. And, yes. um, <laughs> and you certainly yeah. had a lot of pain hmm. in your history up to this point. We've discussed it. You've had, you yeah, had a lot sure. of pain at that point. Yeah. So you're going into all that deep inside. So what did you face in there? Well, there was that physical uh, side, uh, which was really quite worrying at the time. 
but uh, the Lama, he was there at the time, Lama Ganga. And he he just, I think he said, oh, that's, well, he gave me the impression that it, that was just to be expected. It, it was the Nadis kind of getting straightened out. Uh, but I, I really thought I was going to die. Um, it was like, like that, you know, this is a tremendous sort of heart attack going across across your chest rather than up and down the arms or anything. And this, I suppose, is a medical something was going on uh, in the chest area, and the uh, yeah, and also I think in the where was it? This is the first year. My father had a. Um, an actual heart attack. Uh, there's a history of it on the male side in my family. Uh, and you sort of get one letter a month. Uh, he's had a heart attack and everything. That was quite worrying. Um, so you sort of have to sit with that and deal with that as well. Um, the whole thing of, you know, how my child was doing, um, that was not easy in a way. But these are kind of just really personal things. Um, I don't think gen and also there was quite a strong antagonism, shall we say, from uh, another person, and they, uh, I yeah, maybe I didn't deal with it very well, but the, I think that was sometimes quite difficult. I would cause other people difficulties. I know that, yeah, as well. So, uh, it, I, I wouldn't. Uh, I think you just come out stronger, you know, stronger. I hope. Anyway, I feel <laughs> uh, stronger in a way. Uh, I'm curious which practices you were doing at the time of your trucor heart attacks. Oh, it was uh, trucor. Yeah. It was uh, during that period, and you, you're beginning to um, deal with the um, the inner nadis, uh, the knots, as they call them. Uh, and some of them, it's expressed as being uh, kind of old, and uh, of course, they're not really physical, but the, uh, and yeah, a distinct feeling of knots, yes, uh, being... Uh, straightened, shall we say, and then the air's moving more freely. It's it's quite a yeah. I can't imagine anybody saying that that wasn't beneficial practice. The trauma. I don't know. Maybe for some, the pain was too much. I don't know. Or the difficulty, uh, but I found that extremely helpful, um, and it helped the mind too. You did uh, two. Yes. Back to back. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Two more questions about the retreat. First of all, as far as I understand, and I'm thinking now in particular of people I've I've talked to finished the, this same sort of retreat in France and in Canada. I think and in mm. Canada it was under Kali Rinpoche's uh, umbrella. Mm -hmm. Completion of that retreat in the Kagyu tradition technically qualifies you to be a Lama. Is that correct? That is correct, isn't it? <laughs> Oh dear, yeah, it's, but it's not. Yeah, I don't feel like I'm alone. Okay, <laughs> uh, 
I do feel like I've got a university degree, okay, but I, I don't feel like I'm an honor. No. What do you make of that? Um, well, I think it's, yeah. I mean, you get called a lama if you're just a monk, often, in culturally, in, you know, if you go to Nepal or Tibet, uh, they go, you know, lama, lama, like that. Uh, so there's that kind of level where it's just, you know, somebody who's uh, in robes, really. Uh, and the sort of common uh, level. And then the, you might say was sort of middle is that uh, they developed the Tibetans, the monastic system. They had, there were retreatants, and then they kind of codified it into this uh, three-year, uh, like, graduation type of practice. Um, and so as a result of that, you then had a certain degree, however, you know, the retreat affected you, you had a certain amount of knowledge and experience. And so you got called a lama. You're distinguished in that way um, because you have done retreat. But then you would take, I think, you know, a more elevated uh, thing that somebody who really has uh, some degree of realization uh, and that would be the sort of grade three <laughs> lama, if you like, if you wish to grade these things. Um, so, you know, I qualify as the middle type, uh, but um, nobody would suggest, uh, uh, you know, that it went any further than that. It's just something you've done, uh, but it doesn't necessarily speak to your qualities. Whereas uh, proper lamas, so to speak, I don't mean that to mean that they're improper, you know, be derogatory, uh, but uh, the you know, top level, it's more, um, it's, it, it's really speaking to their qualities rather than just something they've done. How universal is that? is that uh, view. The reason I ask that is because um, I have spoken to people on this podcast who um, have taken their completion of a three retreat, it seems, as, as a sort of, and have, they see, report seems to have, have been encouraged to do so, to take it as a kind of... Um, yeah, fine. I don't... Staff, staff to go out and teach and lead to, and start organizations and so on. People yeah. have done that, right? Yeah, sure. And, well, they may well be, you know, if they've been asked to do that, then they are qualified. Uh, right. Uh, it's sort of, uh, I mean, anybody could set them. There probably are, I don't know, uh, people who haven't done much at all <laughs> decide to become ones. Um, but the, uh, yeah, it's not, I don't, no, I don't decry it at all. Uh, I don't, it's not, you know, if, if they are teaching, I think that that's, uh, something that's quite important that maybe uh, you know when you get made a monk uh, in or you become a monk the um, you get called venerable yeah that's this kind of acceptable term that we've and also in the Christianity it's reverend and all, all that well are you really rever revered necessarily? You know, you might be just a very ordinary 
run-of-the-mill priest, but you are called reverend. Um, and so I think that, oh, venerable, yeah. The, uh, it's useful because it perhaps uh, gives people a little bit of a respect. Yeah. I don't, you know, you call somebody Mr., Mrs., Miss, Ms. Uh, the, it's just a, a matter of uh, affording them uh, respect for what they're doing. Uh, and if they're teaching, then uh, they really should be uh, called a lama, I suppose. Uh, and maybe that's another, you know, slightly elevated beyond <laughs> the person who, you know, just does a retreat. Okay, that qualifies you as a lama, just as a name. But then, uh, yeah, maybe I should have introduced the intermediary <laughs> in my schema that um, a teacher uh, who's teaching people uh, Buddhism, then they should, yeah, why not call them a lama? Yeah, I, it's perfectly valid, I think, yeah. And then uh, you got a somebody who's been sort of appointed a lama, agreed by, you know, high lamas that uh, they should be called a lama. And, and they uh, are called that because of their inherent qualities of realization. I would like to ask you if you feel you you achieved any realization from that, but I'm not sure if one's <laughs> allowed to really, I mean, I can, I'm allowed to ask whatever I like. Uh, I, I don't suppose I get an answer out of you. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, a certain degree, should we say, it wasn't, uh, I think you've got the picture that it's um, yeah. by no means a waste of time. <laughs> but I, I wouldn't, you know, I, I just do what I do, you know, it's, um, and sometimes people don't like it. And sometimes I don't like it. Uh, but I kind of, I think um, Lama Ganga had a quite interesting thing. He said that um, after a retreat, uh, you you will have all sorts of ideas of what you're going to maybe do or not do. You know, some people are quite ambitious or, or not or whatever it is. Uh, but after a few years, you'll find that you are where you want to be. You know that that's what you want. You know, the sort of it's a self fulfilling <laughs> thing. And I kind of found myself. Um, well, I had, yeah, there was a certain amount of, you know, after retreat, uh, unusual circumstance with um, uh, a terma finder. But that sort of went, well, not nowhere, but it didn't develop into anything much. Could have done, perhaps. And the uh, I ended up, you know, working in libraries and stuff, uh, still associated with Buddhism and Tibetan Dharma, uh, Buddhist Dharma, uh, and just trying to, well, not trying, but, um, yeah, try, I suppose trying, uh, the, be helpful uh, in making information available and preserving it for people as well. That spirit of service. <laughs> That's... Um... <laughs> Well, yes. you, you, you've said as much, uh, although perhaps not, not as immodestly as I'm <laughs> saying it. But yes. You're talking about a spirit of service, it seems, that you've oriented towards subsequently. That's, mm. yeah. Mm. Um, 
When you come out of eight years of retreat, I'd, I'd imagine one would be kind of institutionalized, like coming out of prison, but like enlightenment prison or something. <laughs> um, so that must have been interesting. I'm wondering what that was like, reintegrating into life again. And also, yeah, we can start there, but then I would like to ask you about your remarkable encounter with Karma Rinpoche, mm. and the Chulain retreat that you carried out mm. uh, subsequently, mm. um, and so on. So there's quite a lot of interesting things that happen next. So what about the yeah. institutionalization? How did you reintegrate? Yeah, well, <laughs> yet again, you finish something kind of happens and you you got no money <laughs> and uh what to do uh, the i took a bit of time i suppose just to um see family and things and then when was it uh came out in february i think the new year tibetan new year lunar new year and sort of in the summer, um, uh, there was a certain amount of, you know, meeting up with family again to reintegrate in a way. And uh, then in the summer, the retreat ended at the New Year, the Lunar New Year in the February. And in the summer, uh, Lama Yeshe at uh, Samueling, uh, he had met this Kama Rinpoche at the time of the inauguration of the 17th Kamapa in Tsopu. And they apparently had got on very well. And this Kama Rinpoche, who's had a reputation as a, a Turton, he'd had uh, discovered 30 Termas, uh, apparently. The, uh, he had come out of uh, Tibet. He'd had a, a short-term visa to leave, uh, to go to India, and then he had to return. And he had written to uh, Lama Yeshe to ask him if he could come to receive instruction on the Chulen practice for a, a terma of his. He was something of an expert on Chulen. He's got a, a terma on this. And uh, Lama Yeshe thought that he you know he was too busy or he didn't want to go or, or whatever it was and so he asked uh, me and uh, one of the uh, nuns who had been in the retreat at Tsering uh, to go and receive the instruction so uh, we got some sponsorship to go and went to India and met him uh, and he gave some instruction in retreat in the caves above uh, Lake Rewalsa, uh, Tsopema, uh, Tibetans know it is, where uh, Guru Rinpoche had spent time with uh, Mandarava back in the day. And he was uh, sort of holding a retreat there. And it was quite, um, yeah, <laughs> it's quite exciting <laughs> time. Uh, and anyway, so we did, we received instruction in the, uh, the various Chulens, um, in the sort of herbal Chulen and the stone Chulen. Chulen. There's then a, a water Chulen and a, an air uh, Chulen as well. And the Chulen means extracting the essence. And it's a way of doing a practice where you eat very little indeed. 
you do your practice uh, and you sort of get sustenance through extracting the essence. That's what it means. Uh, and so for the herbal one, you take a pill, you know, one pill a day. And then for the uh, stone, you actually do two uh, little bits of stone. Uh, grit, I suppose you would call it. And uh, water, you just survive on water. And then air, chulen, is just you survive on air. So quite difficult, you know, but very useful if you're a yogi in the high mountains. Um, so anyway, we were doing this. And then he decided, he had a dream or a vision, of, yes, of um, that, well, no, he had an inspiration, shall we say, that there was a terma inside a particular rock. He'd been doing a sort of evening walk around. And this rock was, um, you can't see the, uh, let's say, oh, half a meter, yeah, a couple of feet, maybe the most. It was like almost a boulder, really, quite big. But there was one uh, sort of lozenge shape. There was one uh, Tibetan there who was, you know, quite large. <laughs> and he got him to lift this uh, rock and bring it into the cave. And he decided to do a week's um, air retreat with this rock because he was convinced that there was a terma inside it. So they sealed up the cave and he spent time in there. And there was actually an air hole that went up. Um, so I could hear him sometimes, you know, chant. He was given, very given to uh, singing um, uh, spontaneous gur uh, songs in the Tibetan manner, in the yeah, yogi manner. And uh, so he spent a week doing it, and then they opened the cave, and uh, he was very uh, happy, should we say, that um, there was a Toma. So he told us afterwards, excuse me, I'm just going to cough a second. <laughs> he told us afterwards that the... Um, there had been a point, you know, four or five days, five days into it, that he got quite despairing and that nothing was happening, so to speak. He tied uh, a special string round the, uh, uh, round the boulder, should we call it, the rock. And then he'd had a, a, a vision that um, a, de a female deity had told him to uh, carry on that um, don't, you know, despair. And then the next day or afterwards, uh, at some point, the rock just cracked open. And inside, there was like a, not, you know, half and half, but like a sort of lid type part of it. And inside, there was a, a sort of, about that size, maybe, you know, uh, excavation uh, of uh, shapes and there were shapes put into it like a bit like in a child's toy you know you have something that you push through a circular shape or a triangular shape well there was a triangle sorry there was a circle there was a square there was a triangle and then there was a, a semi circle 
There's a semicircle and a triangle in that order. And they were all slightly colored, um, the, the white, the yellow, the red, and the dark. Um, and then on top of that was laid a, a certain amount of text, very short text. Uh, all of this inside this rock. <laughs> now, okay, I had, you know, listened to a certain extent or been around the area and you didn't hear the chip, chip, chip of somebody with a chisel <laughs> chopping out uh, something. I knew something about carving. Um, I'd been around stone carvers. So it did seem quite unusual and he was delighted, you know, this was a term. Uh, wrapped everything, wrapped the text up and before people, because uh, according to the tradition that a terma can disappear as well. So the circumstances have to be quite carefully looked after. So we went into the cave and he's sitting on one of these fold up metal mattresses that you get in India because the ground was kind of rough and a little bit damp as well, actually. Um, and he's sitting there, and he's telling us about this and he's singing a song. There's maybe... I don't know, five, six, eight people there. Um, and then he says, um, I feel a, a footprint. <laughs> I must put, make a footprint. Uh, and he looks down at the ground and it's all kind of, I think they call it shish, schist. It's just, you know, rubble, really. And then his uh, nephew points out, uh, oh, look, there's the wall there of the cave. So he leans over on this bed and puts his foot into the rock and leaves a footprint. Uh, and I looked at it afterwards uh, very closely. And it was like, uh, you know, if you had very wet sand or even clay, I suppose, and you put your thing, your hand or your foot into it, and it would even get the the walls, walls, walls of the skin, uh, the, the fingerprint, I suppose, or the, from the toe, uh, imprinted uh, there. And that was what it was like. But this was rock, and it went in about um, about a centimeter. Or so. Uh, so again, uh, he was delighted with this because he'd made a footprint on his left foot in Tibet, and now he'd done in his right foot uh, in India. And uh, so, yeah, it, you know, I met up with him, you know, went with him traveling a bit in India. Uh, I think we went to see Sitarumache um, and went around a bit. Um, and he was quite a character. He would burst out, you know, you'd be in a restaurant having a song and he'd suddenly burst out into some... Uh, song. The voice wasn't great, but it was very, uh, uh, it was quite powerful, really. Anyway, eventually I went back. Uh, he had to go himself. He had to go back to Tibet, and I went back to the UK. And uh, the next year, uh, I went to find him in East Tibet to ask about this terma, the text, and he interpreted it. Because it seems that, you know, it was very few pages, but it needed the Tertun, the finder of this terma, this treasure, uh, to interpret it. 
And I went back the next year and uh, he said, oh, no, <laughs> I said, well, it was such a journey. You know, it was like, it was a middle, actually, yeah, I got not exactly arrested, but told to leave by the Chinese because I, yeah, I wasn't obeying the rules really um, in, a, in a restricted area. And the, um, and when I eventually got there, you said, oh, no, it's not ready yet. <laughs> I had to come back. I went back the next year in the summer and uh yeah, he gave me the text. It uh I've now got a copy, I've put it in the uh, British Library. Um but this is expanded, so it's like, you know, three hundred folios or so, yeah. It's quite it's about Zogchen. Um <coughs> <laughs> excuse me. He, yeah, so I I kind of worked on it for a bit, uh, but I didn't pursue it in the end, and I, I sort of lost touch with him. Uh, the second time that I went there, yes, that's right, uh, we went up in the mountains. Uh, I met him near uh, Jekundu, uh, Yushu, and went up in the mountains to where this other, he had been Tejankama, he had been one of these, there'd been a few of them, that when the communists came into Tibet, uh, they, rather than run away or get killed or imprisoned, uh, they'd just gone up into the hills as yogis and hidden out there and to a certain extent had been uh, looked after by the local population secretly, bringing them food and that sort of thing. And there was a couple of them... Um, and he knew of another one who lived uh, up in the hills and so uh, went up there. And it turned out that they were doing this um, uh, yeshibab practice, the people there. And I made some, uh, this was the second time I went back, I made some film there, which I haven't done much with really. I ought to. Um, and there's where people sort of... Mm, Going to trance, I suppose, would be the best way to explain, express it. Uh, and they, they use this as a practice uh, in a way. Um, and it helps them. My interpretation is that it seems to help them uh, with their practice through, it's doing something with their nadis, I'm not sure. But there were some people who it was extremely painful uh, and one presumes that their nadis were in a particular um, bad form somehow. Uh, there, I mean, there was one poor woman. It kept on happening to her, and she would, and she would persist because uh, it was her practice. But it would cause her a lot of pain. Um, there were others who would kind of dance around. It would be quite a joyful thing. Uh, I did film somebody who sort of became. Uh, a Mahakala, um, and he would just dance, prance around as a Mahakala, as you know, we're told would do, and uh, making these extraordinary sounds. Um, it was quite frightening to a certain extent. Um, another, there was a woman who they uh, quite revered, a young woman, who would just go into long, she had a lovely voice, she had a lovely voice, um, long songs as well just singing out across the mountains. Um, and that was 
that was what it inspired her to. That was part of her trance practice, I suppose. Uh, myself, <laughs> I never experienced the trance, so uh, I didn't really try. But um, uh, yeah, it didn't happen to me. So that was just part of that uh, uh, that second trip. Uh, and I brought the uh, the Tama here and the uh, the Chulen practice as well. Um, and I told you know people about it, but nobody seemed particularly interested. So I left it really, unfortunately, perhaps I don't know. But it's it's around. Um, I think um, yeah, somebody did look at the uh, the Chulen um, a bit. They were studying it, but. Um, yeah. No one was interested in the chew then? That seems surprising to me. Yeah. Well, I'm not experienced, you know, I don't have the I don't know, that certain degree of transmission, I suppose. But um yeah, no, it's not it doesn't seem to. It's quite difficult, fasting. <laughs> uh yes. <laughs> yeah. Um you did a retreat. At that time, you had a cottage in Scotland you were living in, as far as I understand. And you, when you came back, you did some retreat there with the Rilbu and the Do Chulen. Yes. Yeah, yes. I'm wondering, how, how did that go? Um, quite well, I think. Yeah, quite well. It was a little bit difficult. Uh, as I say, you know, the fasting and all that. Uh, it's not, you know, you do eat every now and again but um yeah that was quite it was okay yeah but it didn't i didn't find it terribly uh attractive in a way you know uh, maybe that's the wrong word but it didn't uh grab me is, is another way of putting it i suppose um so i kind of left it as well i did a dark retreat there as well um, which I found very useful to where you in a completely dark room you have to organize the ventilation so that no light gets in you know have a curled curved ventilation tube black out everything um, and then have a system for food coming in um, that you have sort of triple doors that you can put it close and then you can go in and get it without any light coming in. Um, and also your waste as well can go out in plastic bag or bottle. And uh, the, yeah, that was, uh, that was, that's sort of linked to the uh, Bardo, what's called a Bardo retreat. Yeah. Uh, got that instruction from Ajuntoku. Uh, uh, did one in Nepal, a short one, and then did a longer one in uh, in uh, Scotland. That was very uh, useful. I, know I wouldn't mind doing that again sometime. Two weeks in Nepal, wasn't it? And how long in Scotland? Uh, I think it was a week in Nepal and uh, three weeks in uh, in Scotland. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes they say seven, uh, but I thought uh, I did. Yeah. The sort of general idea about it is that, you know, what people say is that at two weeks is when it gets really difficult. You sort of, 
you can go a little but some people um break the retreat you know and it seems to be at around about two weeks and they uh not exactly crazy but you know there's something uh goes wrong so to speak uh so it's a difficult time and actually yeah when i did the three-week one the lo and behold round about two weeks in um you get a very sort of tempestuous time mentally just going on in your head really not health wise not just completely uh, sort of visionary wise perhaps as well um yeah it does induce uh, a certain degree of visions too uh, and but but once you get through that it's fine you know so it seems to be anyway uh it's like a tempestuous time and that does seem to happen i it's only i only say that you know it's not written down in that way but i've heard it uh, a couple of times it may well not be true every, in every case but i certainly found that gosh <laughs> well, we're closing. We're closing in on the present day. Yes, <laughs> yes. We're closing in. Uh, from what I understand, you worked as a subtitler for ten years for TV, BBC, and so on. Yeah, and, yeah. Um, and then eventually returned after well, a rather long gap from Colombia to in in terms of academia. You oh, returned yes. back to academia. Yes, um, yes. And did your BA in at SOAS mm. and discovered there, rediscovered perhaps, your passion for that academic life yeah. and yeah. Um, were advised to apply to Harvard and you did, and mm -hmm. you did your master's in theological studies at Harvard Divinity School. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's quite a return to form. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there'd always been regrets about the academia, you know, uh, thing, I suppose. Um, and yeah, so well, uh, I was in Scotland, um, you know, doing occasional retreats and stuff, and uh, basically doing the wood carving. I've gone back to the wood carving a bit. Uh, in terms of supporting myself. And then this job came up, you know, in a uh, newspaper. This is pre-internet days, 95. And it was for uh, doing this captioning, uh, subtitling for the deaf and hard of hearing. And I for some reason i thought oh well uh, uh i'll do that um and i applied and got chosen uh there was about four of us i think uh there's already a team there they were expanding quite a lot and so i commuted between <laughs> they had uh, slightly unusual uh, work arrangements and uh did that yeah it ended up well i did a few years there. As soon as I got there, I, I realized, oh, this can be done from home. <laughs> so I waited, you know, I did the commuting for two years and then um, uh, applied, uh, asked them if, you know, it could be done from home. They said, no, of course it can't. And so I sort of did some research and persuaded them um, 
that it could be done from home and maybe they should do an experiment with a few people. And they did, and it seemed to work. And I did about five years of, uh, you know, the video cassettes. It wasn't streaming and there was a being sent up to Scotland and uh, you're sending the file back and then it gets broadcast. So that was uh, and that was quite well paid as well. So that was quite nice living in Scotland and uh, getting well paid as well. And quite interesting work too. There was a certain sort of repetitious element to it, but uh, it was good working with words really. And people say, oh, well, how come you went from wood carving to working with words? Well, it was editing, you see. You have to get people speak faster than uh, you can read. Uh, and so they had a, I think it was 650 characters per minute, was it? Um, that was the standard. Uh, children was slower, 550 or something. I think it started at 700 or 720, and then they went down to 650. Um, and so you had to lose quite a bit. You had to edit and yet keep the drama or the humor or the feeling that was in the piece, whatever it was. Did a lot of Jerry Springer, would you believe? <laughs> and every every now and again, Charles Manson would get mentioned. <laughs> uh, and then at the end of the program, your name comes out. This was captioned by Charles Manson. So I wonder what um, deaf people thought of that. Uh, but anyway, yeah, so it was editing down, which is kind of what wood carving is. It's editing down. Uh, a, a block of wood into a shape of some sort. It sounds like a good training also at Sensum, uh, sort of training in uh, for translating. Yes, yes, yes. Working with words, yeah. Yeah, it was very much. Yeah. But it sort of, um, it came to a sort of natural, well, not a natural end, but I, I, I thought uh, I, I really, I was intellectually engaged in a way. And I thought I'd go back and study more. So I did it for a year, sort of part-time with the work. And then uh, they had a chain, they needed to have some redundancies. So I applied and you know, you get quite a nice bit of money from a redund voluntary redundancy. And um, so I was able to do the degree uh, from that in uh, Tibetan studies and then went to Harvard and then came back and went to Oxford for a bit. I found that um, very expensive and the, I got into debt a bit and I, I didn't like that at all. So, uh, but there were jobs came up, a couple of jobs. Um, the, uh, Oxford Dictionary wanted somebody to read their sentences and be recorded. Uh, so I did that. And one of the, I did a, a theatre captioning as well, because I had the experience in television captioning. And uh, library, applied to library work. And I kind of found my, well, I feel like it's my métier. I'm perhaps not a natural librarian, but um, I certainly enjoy it. I've been doing it... Uh, Ooh, 14 years or so, yeah, both at Bodleian and then seven years at uh, at the British Library too, looking after the Tibetan collections. So using your knowledge 
and to a certain degree your experience and uh, and yet uh, yeah it's it's a win-win for me i think <laughs> you could put it that way and getting paid yes yeah so i i very much enjoy it and good people really nice people and presumably you you'd enrolled in oxford with a view to completing a phd or something like that yes it? that's true yes i was going to do a phd and come up actually um but finances kind of got in the way and uh oh then i went yeah i went and studied with um uh matthew capstein in paris for a bit and sort of transferred the phd to there but um i don't know i i just couldn't keep it up in a way um time and money and and studying you really do need to have a grant i don't think you know people would say before oh you can't really work at the same time as doing phd and i think well why not you know <laughs> uh but i learned my lesson yeah you can't really uh you have to uh so then it was a matter of writing a book about it um about the subject come up actually but then i'd done you know a lot of the research uh for it the subject and uh it was just a matter of finding the time uh for writing which also took a bit of time but then of course there was the pandemic so that sort of helped in a way in terms of not being distracted quite as much <laughs> yes. what sort of things do you uh work on at the Bodleian and and British Library I mean they're they're quite famous British libraries famously replete with mm. cool stuff, cool text, <laughs> yes. Huang stuff. Didn't um, was yes. it um, what was his name? Not Stein. Um, yes, Stein. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Are you working on that material? Uh, yeah. Well, I did a, a little project. It's not. It's a slightly different department. The IDP International Dunhuang Program, um, but the uh, they did have uh, the certain. I think it was about 400 documents hadn't been catalogued or registered in some way. Uh, I mean, they've got their numbers, but they hadn't been, yeah. And they they had six months worth of money. Uh, so I did that uh, for a while. So there am I sitting at a desk with these documents from a thousand years ago. And uh, not entirely casually, of course, you can't drink a lot. It's really, you had to organize your toilet and your uh, uh, drinks and so forth. Um, and, uh, but yeah, you got a little bit. So, oh, this is a thousand years old. Wow. Uh, and just doing that. So I did that, but that was just a six months project. Yeah. Otherwise, it's, it's, it can be quite banal um, buying books. At the moment, I'm doing quite a bit of um, looking through book lists to buy books. You get a certain budget and then cataloging them when they come in, the Tibetan language books. Uh, and you're working with other people to a certain degree. And that's, they're such nice people to work with that, um, it, it, yeah, it, it's quite smooth, really. I don't think I would do it if it was <laughs> awkward. Um, and the very much that was in the, that's in the British Library in the in the um, 
oddly and it's very much the same i do look after the uh uh, man, well, look after, uh, responsible for, I suppose, the uh, manuscripts as well. I'm cataloguing. There was a donation by um, John Driver. Some of you may know the Tibetan Civilization book written by R.A. Stein, a different Stein, uh, Belgian. And uh, he trans- John Driver translated it. Oh, there you go. You've got a copy. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Um, he was uh, a yeah, he's recently died, 2016. Uh, he died, and his son, as a professor in uh, uh, London, he uh, donated his collection to the Bodleian. And so, yeah, John Driver was in Tibet with his wife and child, not that son. He was born later, but uh, uh, in northern India, not Tibet, sorry, in northern India, in Nepal, in 1959, uh, well, from 1958, perhaps. Uh, And so he was there when the Tibetans came out, so to speak. And he had collected his text uh, uh, largely before that time, as far as I understand. And the, uh, so it's like a snapshot, in a way, of what was around at that time. This is before Gene Smith starts uh, so some of the um, texts, although um, TBRC, BDRC have it scanned for people who uh, use the Tibetan uh, a lot, uh, and sometimes the scans aren't quite so good, and some of them uh, we have at uh, Bodleian, uh, which is quite useful. And I'm coming towards the end of that. It's been, well, it's been on and off. A COVID you couldn't get into look at texts, uh, but um, uh, there's a catalogue called Karchak, K-A-R-C-H-A-K, at Oxford, um, d- digital catalogue of the, it just really gives the titles of um, and the dimensions of the text, so people can find them there. But that's not finished yet, but I'm getting towards the end of well, hundreds of them. And also the regular, you know, books published in China. You can imagine how many Tibetan books are published in China now. Um, it's hard to keep up. And uh, and then also translations, the Western translations, uh, publishers in the USA and uh, Europe as well, and in India too. The monasteries are publishing quite a bit themselves. They're setting up. Uh, and you have to kind of try and keep track of that too. It's all books. Yeah. Well, it sounds that sounds pretty great, actually. I can barely keep track of my book buying. Uh, so you know, right. I can only imagine how you must keep track of all that influx. Yeah, you just uh, tackle it as it comes in. Yeah, yeah. It does. It's a little bit. You've always got backlogs. And things, yeah, it's sort of, it does hang in the back of your mind a bit. Oh, this hasn't been done. That hasn't been done. Um, But all you can do is is just chip away at the coalface and get it done as much as you can. I hope it's um, useful to the scholars. Uh, I think it's important that stuff gets preserved. These institutions are very good at preserving material. 
Um, and these, you know, the internet, okay, it's quite exciting how you can be almost anywhere and read stuff, but it only takes the flick of a switch and uh, it's off. So, and that has happened this two weeks ago in the British Library. We had a cyber attack and nobody can access their work. We've had our computers taken away to be reprocessed and all that and made safe, but um, it doesn't take much. I suppose you could say, you know, with a library, all it takes is one match uh, and that's the end of it. But um, the internet isn't forever either. Nothing is forever. <laughs> Well, as as we are often reminded yes. <laughs> by the Buddha himself. Yes, yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, well, Charles, this has been so great. So fascinating. Thank you so much for yeah. uh, sharing your life here, sharing the story of your life here with on this podcast. It's been so wonderful. Yeah. Uh, is there okay. anything else we ought to say or discuss or, or comment on before we bring this to an end? Yeah. Well, people will make up their own minds, you know, who is this guy? <laughs> what does he think he's doing? Uh, he's being selfish about this and all that. Uh, but uh, that's as may be. Um, what has happened recently with the uh, with publishing this book is that I okay I give talks about it and I've done on the east coast of USA uh, institutions largely not so much uh, Buddhist places um, you know libraries university uh, TBRC BDRC I did uh, Shambhala the um, meditation center in Boston but not the uh, Buddhist places. And then uh, back here, uh, I did uh, Bodleian and so as, again, institutions. So it's sort of more the historical side of it. And then uh, Dirk de Klerk, um, who kindly, um, in the book, you'll see some music annotated mm. of the Mani mantra. Um, which I think, you know, is quite cool. <laughs> but nobody seems to be terribly interested. Uh, but anyway, the um, uh, he has a little meditation group uh, locally at King's Cross. And he asked me to, uh, you know, give some instruction or a leader, leader day retreat. So I thought, well, when I've talked about Karmapakshi, he does, Karmapakshi does mention this uh, introduction to the three kayas or four kayas or even five, but um, usually three or four, quite a bit. And I've had one or two questions, people saying, well, what is this about? Well, you know, it's not in an institutional setting. Maybe it's not the time to go into the, I give a little bit of explanation, but I thought, why don't we actually do it, you know, in this day retreat? Um, so we did. And it was slightly experimental in the sense that I didn't know what was going to, you know, whether it would be well received or not. Um, it was just regular meditation uh, split up into uh, short sessions. And 
apparently it was well received. So uh, they've, you know, I, I do that once a month now there. And then the Buddhist Society um, next week going to give a talk. So it's a Buddhist center more about karma practice. So I'll angle it more towards the um, their interests, the audience's interests. And also uh, we'll do some of the meditation as well. And likewise, going to go to um, uh, Brussels and do it there again with the meditation. Um, that won't, the talk will be online, but not the meditation. I think it's, I'm, people may argue against it, but I think it's better not to, um, better to do it only in person at the moment anyway. And then uh, in Germany to uh, Kamala Schiele, the uh, place near uh, Bonn, Bonn uh, in Germany. Um, and again, yeah, yeah, do the meditation thing. So I wouldn't, I don't put myself as a meditation teacher uh, far from it, but the I've sort of, come into this a little bit and we'll see how it goes you know if people think it's um, wrong or shouldn't be doing it then okay i'll take that point of view but um at the moment it does seem to be um appreciated so that's uh kind of what i'll you know carry on with the library work and do that as well and eventually maybe it'll get written down but at the moment would you know i'd prefer just to it's early days and just keep it as a uh, uh, in-person um, practical practice thing. I'm wondering two things with really. you: why you don't, why do you insist that you're not a meditation teacher? I'm curious about that, and also, who might I understand people in this area can get prickly about such things, but who who might object to you teaching that? I don't know. Yeah. They might say, well, what's your lineage or <laughs> whatever, you know. Um, then you can tell them, can't you? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. But uh, I don't know. It's uh, People argue a lot in religious circles. I've noticed uh, that. Yes. <laughs> no, but in any circles, you know, we're just humans. Uh, and that's kind of how we, if we are progressing, how we do progress, I suppose. The um, by working things out, the yeah, I don't, yeah, I'm, I'm mindful of the fact that uh, somebody might find it um, odd or something, uh, in which case, fair enough, you know, I'm happy to discuss it. Uh, I'm not particularly wanting to push it, but I do feel that if it's beneficial then it should be done that's kind of my approach really and it did seem you know the first time i didn't really want to do it in a way um but dirk was quite <laughs> insistent uh so i did and it seemed to work quite well so let's let's pursue it for the time being and see what happens yeah yeah thank you very much this has been so wonderful how can people get in touch with you of course, I'll include your contact details in the description of the episode below wherever yeah. it is. But uh, how would you rather people contact you? Yeah, well, if it's in terms of, uh, you know, Tibetan texts and so forth, then uh, I'm, I'm, you know, on the Bodleian. If you put in 
Bodleian, Oxford, Manson. You should get, well, there are other Mansons, uh, Manson Tibet or something. You know how Google finds people. Uh, there's a, a Bodleian email address there. So, but, you know, that's for that side of things, really. And um, I can't do, well, I don't have time um, to do research for people but sometimes if people can't find things or they think something might be at the bottom end, then I'd be perfectly happy to answer. Um, I'm not so much on the uh, British Library website, um, but there is um, Burkhardt Kessel, if you, you know, Tibetan uh, website for the British Library. Um, he's the curator uh, and we see each other regularly at work and sometimes, you know, sort things out together. Uh, so, uh, you know, just go to the website for anything to do with the British Library in terms of books or manuscripts. But the, um, and we do, you know, we get both places, we get uh, lamas visiting sometimes. The, um, but in terms of uh, this book, I think just my personal, I put it on the um, various advertising things. Uh, let's see, is there a card here? Yeah. I do sort of have a card thing. And the address is on there. It's um, uh, cemanson at live.com. It's very simple. Uh, no, but just cemanson, all one word. Um, and that's, that's fine. Um, I do maintain a couple of Facebook things for the Tibetan studies at SOAS and the Bodleian Library as well, which I think people look at a bit. It's about Tibetan matters. But um, I don't really, I don't much, it's not a good way to um, get in touch, really, I don't think. Um, well, not a good, yeah, it's a fine way. But uh, I'd rather if you wrote uh, directly. Um, if somebody has a query, um, I'd be happy to. Well, I hope I'd be happy to <laughs> answer. Willing, at least. <laughs> yes, yes, to a certain degree. Yeah, it's 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 just a, it's the willingness is there. Sometimes time um, and difficulty is um, uh, you know makes it difficult sometimes. Uh, I do. Uh, I've had uh, help in various times. People being kind to me, and you have to keep that in mind. I think. In terms of helping others, you mean? Uh, yeah, yeah. It's, I mean, in terms of, you know, I can't find this or, you know, I'm looking for that or what do you think I should read uh, this sort of thing? Um, I don't, I, I'm never sure. <laughs> they often don't come back, so I'm never sure whether the advice was any good. Uh, but certainly uh, people have done it for me. And um, I actually, to think of it, I probably haven't gone back and said <laughs> Oh, thanks very much. I no, that's not true. Actually, yes, I have a couple of times, very deliberately, um, gone back and said that was really wonderful that you told me about that. And um, people are quite surprised sometimes how much an effect it had. Oh, oh, and perhaps that happened. I don't know. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I'm happy to communicate, um, given time and ability. You know, I may not know something about. Uh, uh, something and, and I'll just say so rather than give false information. <laughs> Charles Manson, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to another Guru Viking podcast. 
For more interviews like these, as well as articles, videos, and guided meditations, visit www.guruviking.com.